Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit worldafropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. Worldafropedia.com. Hello there, and welcome to Unzi Talks. One great book, two short minutes. And the book I am talking about now is The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. This is young adult fiction. It is an absolutely riveting read. And I have two reasons why I value The Hate You Give. The first one is its reflection of real life. So within this book, we have a main character. Her name is Star. She is the only narrator. It's a first person narration. And Star has to do a lot of code switching. She uh, lives with her African-American family in an urban setting. Um, her father is a former convict, somebody who was a gang member, went to jail, served his time, and came out and is doing his absolute best um, and has met with a lot of success as the local grocer. So she lives in an urban neighborhood and yet goes to, uh, along with her brother, goes to this white, upper-class, suburban um, school, private school, which is called Williamson. And so she actually refers to that version, that school version of herself, the scholar-athlete star, as Williamson star. Um, and so you see that she has to do all this code switching, or feels very much that she has to do this code switching. So there's a lot of um, tension in the book between her and her friends from school and her and her friends um, at home. The book opens with her at a party in her home neighborhood. Um, and then the news coverage from a tragic event that happens at that party is what kind of spurs the character work and the plot work of the entire novel. Because how people react to that event at her school is very different than how people react to that event in her neighborhood. So I'm trying hard not to include any spoilers. Um, but this is a fantastic read. It's a book that as soon as you're finished reading it, you'll want to go back and reread again. And it's definitely a book that you're going to want to talk about with a friend. So I suggest reading it with a friend. Um, both of you get a copy and read it together and talk about it as you go or after. So add it to your TBR, and until next time. The Cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's day, Friday, March 23rd, 2018. So I have been told this is our third study session 
on Angie Thomas's nuclear smash hit young adult novel, The Hate You Give. We are picking up on Chapter 7. Again, this book spent 38 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list for young adult literature. May or it's being converted into a major motion picture at this very moment scheduled for release sometime uh, soon in the near future. I think uh, the audio, the audio clip you heard at the beginning, uh, it's from, a, from one of the many YouTube vloggers, white woman giving her rave reviews of how gripping and realistic the hate you give is. Uh, and there are quite a few of those. If you want to go on YouTube and look at some of the, video content people have done you know reviews and what have you there are a lot of white people particularly white women who have done reviews of this book very uh, glowing reviews of the book how they think it's so great and wonderful and all the other accolades anytime I see a lot of that whites again just in praise of something that a black person did that's related to racism generally that is more than enough to make me think that it is not constructive uh, and this one, I think I would co-sign with the listener who was talking about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and that being invoked uh, as a theme and something to relate to and how to identify with a black person, particularly the main black character. Wow, that is going to be nerve plucking already is, but that is really going to nerve plucking and, and in some view for me undermines the seriousness of this project. But without further ado, let's get started. Angie Thomas. The Hate You Give, keep an eye out for the fingerprints of racist man writing this book. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment number one. Seven. Khalil's funeral is Friday, tomorrow. Exactly one week since he died. I'm at school, trying not to think about what he'll look like in the coffin. How many people will be there? What he'll look like in the coffin? If other people will know I was with him when he died. What he'll look like in the coffin? I'm failing at not thinking about it. On the Monday night news, they finally gave Khalil's name in the story about the shooting, but with a title added to it. Khalil Harris, a suspected drug dealer. They didn't mention that he was unarmed. They said that an unidentified witness had been questioned and that the police were still investigating. After what I told the cops, I'm not sure what's left to investigate. In the gym, everyone's changed into their blue shorts and gold Williamson T-shirts, but class hasn't started yet. To pass time, some of the girls challenged some of the boys to a basketball game. They're playing on one end of the gym, the floor squeaking as they run around. The girls are all, stop, when the guys guard them, flirting, Williamson style. Haley, Maya, and I are in the bleachers on the other end. On the floor, some guys are supposedly dancing, trying to get their moves ready for prom. I say supposedly because there's no way that shit can be called dancing. Maya's boyfriend, Ryan, is the only one even close, and he's just doing the dab. It's his go-to move. He's a big, wide-shouldered linebacker, and it looks a little funny, 
but that's an advantage of being the sole black guy in class. You can look silly and still be cool. Chris is on the bottom bleacher, playing one of his mixes on his phone for them to dance to. He glances over his shoulder at me. I have two bodyguards who won't allow him near me. Maya on one side, cheering Ryan on, and Haley, who's laughing her ass off at Luke and recording him. They're still pissed at Chris. I'm honestly not. He made a mistake, and I forgive him. The Fresh Prince theme and his willingness to embarrass himself helped with that. But that moment he grabbed my hands, and I flashed back to that night. It's like I suddenly really, really realized that Chris is white, just like 115. And I know I'm sitting here next to my white best friend, but it's almost as if I'm giving Khalil, Daddy, Seven, and every other black guy in my life a big, loud fuck you by having a white boyfriend. Chris didn't pull us over. He didn't shoot Khalil. But am I betraying who I am by dating him? I need to figure this out. Oh, my God, that's sickening, says Haley. She stopped recording to watch the basketball game. They're not even trying. They're really not. The ball sails past the hoop from an attempted shot by Bridget Holloway. Either homegirl's hand-eye coordination is way off, or she missed that on purpose, because now Jackson Reynolds is showing her how to shoot. Basically, he's all up on her and shirtless. I don't know what's worse. Haley says, the fact that they're going soft on them because they're girls, or that the girls are letting them go soft on them. Equality in basketball, right, Hales? Maya says with a wink. Yes. Wait. She eyes Maya suspiciously. Are you making fun of me, or are you serious, Shorty? Both, I say, leaning back on my elbows, my belly pooching out my shirt, a food baby. We just left lunch, and the cafeteria had fried chicken, one of the foods Williamson gets right. It's not even a real game, Hales, I tell her. Nope, Maya pats my stomach. When are you due? Same day as you. Ah, we can raise our food offspring as siblings. I know, right? I'm naming mine Fernando, I say. Why Fernando? Maya asks. You know, it sounds like a food baby name, especially when you roll the R. I can't roll my R's. She tries, but she makes some weird noise, spit flying, and I'm cracking up. Haley points at the game. Look at that! It's that whole play-like-a-girl mindset that male gender uses to belittle women when we have as much athleticism as they do. Oh, my Lord. She's seriously upset over this. Take the ball to the hole! She hollers to the girls. Maya catches my eye, hers glimmering sneakily, and it's middle school deja vu. And don't be afraid to shoot the outside, Jay! Maya shouts. Just keep your head in the game, I say. Just keep your head in the game! And don't be afraid to shoot the outside, Jay!
Maya sings. Just get your head in the game, I sing. We bust out with Get Your Head in the Game from High School Musical. It'll be stuck in my head for days. We were obsessed with the movies around the same time as our Jonas Brothers obsession. Disney took all our parents' money. We're loud with it now. Haley's trying to glare at us. She snorts. Come on! She gets up and pulls me and Maya up, too. Get your head in this game. I'm thinking, oh, so you can drag me to play basketball during one of your feminist rages? But you can't follow my Tumblr because of Emmett Till? I don't know why I can't make myself bring it up. It's Tumblr. But then, it's Tumblr. Hey! Haley says. We want to play. No, we don't, Maya mutters. Haley nudges her. I don't want to play either. But for some reason, Haley makes decisions, and Maya and I follow along. It's not like we planned it to be this way. Sometimes the shit just happens, and one day you realize there's a leader among you and your friends, and it's not you. Come on in, ladies. Jackson beckons us into the game. There's always room for pretty girls. We'll try not to hurt you. Haley looks at me. I look at her. And we have the same deadpan expression that we've had mastered since fifth grade. Mouths slightly open, eyes ready to roll at any moment. All righty then, I say. Let's play. Three on three, Haley says as we take our positions. Girls versus boys, half court, first to twenty. Sorry, ladies, but me and my girls are going to handle this one, okay? Bridget gives Haley some serious stank eye. She and her friends move to the sideline. The dance party stops, and those guys come over, Chris included. He whispers something to Tyler, one of the boys who played in the previous game. Chris takes Tyler's place on the court. Jackson checks the ball to Haley. I run around my guard, Garrett, and Haley passes to me. No matter what's going on when Haley, Maya, and I play together, it's rhythm, chemistry, and skill rolled into a ball of amazingness. Garrett's guarding me, but Chris runs up and elbows him aside. Garrett goes, The hell, Bryant? I've got her, Chris says. He gets in his defensive stance. We're eye to eye as I dribble the ball. Hey, he says. Hey, I do a chest pass to Maya, who's wide open for a jump shot. She makes it. Two to zero. Good job, Yang, says Coach Myers. She's come out her office. All it takes is a hint of a real game, and she's in coaching mode. She reminds me of a fitness trainer on a reality TV show. She's petite yet muscular, and God, that woman can yell. Garrett's at the baseline with the ball. Chris runs to get open. Stomach full, I have to push harder to stay on him. We're hip to hip, watching Garrett try to decide who to pass to. Our arms brush, and something in me is activated. My senses are suddenly consumed by Chris. His legs look so good in his gym shorts. He's wearing Old Spice, and even just from that little brush, his skin feels so soft. I miss you, he says. No point in lying. 
I miss you too. The ball sails his way. Chris catches it. Now I'm in my defensive stance, and we're eye to eye again as he dribbles. My gaze lowers to his lips. They're a little wet and begging me to kiss them. See, this is why I can never play ball with him. I get too distracted. Will you at least talk to me? Chris asks. Defense, Carter! Coach yells. I focus on the ball and attempt to steal. Not quick enough. He gets around me and goes straight for the hoop, only to pass it to Jackson, who's open at the three-point line. Grant! Coach shouts for Haley. Haley runs over. Her fingertips graze the ball as it leaves Jackson's hand, changing its course. The ball goes flying. I go running. I catch it. Chris is behind me, the only thing between me and the hoop. Let me clarify. My butt is against his crotch, my back against his chest. I'm bumping up against him, trying to figure out how to get the ball in the hole. It sounds way dirtier than it actually is, especially in this position. I understand why Bridget missed shots, though. Star! Haley calls. She's open at the three. I bounce past it to her. She shoots. Nails it. Five to zero. Come on, boys! Maya taunts. Is that all you can do? Coach claps. Good job! Good job! Jackson's at the baseline. He passes to Chris. Chris chest passes it back to him. I don't get it, Chris says. You practically freaked out the other day in the hall. What's going on? Garrett passes to Chris. I get in my defensive stance. Eyes on the ball, not on Chris. Cannot look at Chris. My eyes will give me away. Talk to me, he says. I attempt to steal again. No luck. Play the game, I say. Chris goes left, quickly changes direction, and goes right. I try to stay on him, but my heavy stomach slows me down. He gets to the hoop and makes the layup. It's good. Five to two. Damn it, Star! Haley yells, recovering the ball. She passes it to me. Hustle! Pretend the ball is some fried chicken. Bet you'll stay on it then. What the actual fuck? The world surges forward without me. I hold the ball and stare at Haley as she jogs away, blue-streaked hair bouncing behind her. I can't believe she said she couldn't have. No way. The ball falls out my hands. I walk off the court. I'm breathing hard, and my eyes burn. The smell of post-game funk lingers in the girls' locker room. It's my place of solace when we lose a game, where I can cry or cuss if I want. I pace from one side of the lockers to the other. Haley and Maya rush in, out of breath. What's up with you? Haley asks. Me? I say my voice bouncing off the lockers. What the hell was that comment? Lighten up. It was only game talk. A fried chicken joke was only game talk? Really? I ask. It's fried chicken day, she says. You and Maya were just joking about it. What are you trying to say? I keep pacing. 
her eyes widen. Oh, my God. You think I was being racist? I look at her. You made a fried chicken comment to the only black girl in the room. What do you think? Holy shit, Star. Seriously? After everything we've been through, you think I'm a racist? Really? You can say something racist and not be a racist. Is something else going on, Star? Maya says. Why does everyone keep asking me that? I snap. Because you're acting so weird lately. Haley snaps back. She looks at me and asks, Does this have something to do with the police shooting that drug dealer in your neighborhood? What? I heard about it on the news, she says. And I know you're into that sort of thing now. That sort of thing? What the fuck is that sort of thing? And then they said the drug dealer's name was Khalil, she says, and exchanges a look with Maya. We've wanted to ask if it was the Khalil who used to come to your birthday parties, Maya adds. We didn't know how, though. The drug dealer. That's how they see him. It doesn't matter that he's suspected of doing it. Drug dealer is louder than suspected ever will be. If it's revealed that I was in the car, what will that make me? The thug ghetto girl with the drug dealer? What will my teachers think about me? My friends? The whole fucking world, possibly. I... I close my eyes. Khalil stares at the sky. Mind your business, Star, he says. I swallow and whisper, I don't know that, Khalil. It's a betrayal worse than dating a white boy. I fucking deny him, damn near erasing every laugh we shared, every hug, every tear, every second we spent together. A million I'm sorry's sound in my head. And I hope they reach Khalil, wherever he is. Yet they'll never be enough. But I had to do it. I had to. Then what is it? Haley asks. Is this like Natasha's anniversary or something? I stare at the ceiling and blink fast to keep from bawling. Besides my brothers and the teachers, Haley and Maya are the only people at Williamson who know about Natasha. I don't want all the pity. Mom's anniversary was a few weeks ago, Haley says. I was in a shitty mood for days. I understand if you're upset, but to accuse me of being racist? Star! How can you even? I blink faster. God, I'm pushing her away, Chris away. Hell, do I deserve them? I don't talk about Natasha, and I just flat out denied Khalil. I could have been the one killed instead of them. I don't have the decency to keep their memories alive, yet I'm supposed to be their best friend. I cover my mouth. It doesn't stop the sob. It's loud and echoes off the walls. One follows it, and another, and another. Maya and Haley rub my back and shoulders. Coach Myers rushes in. Carter? 
Haley looks at her and says, Natasha. Coach nods heavily. Carter, go see Miss Lawrence. What? No. She's sending me to the school shrink? All the teachers know about poor Star, who saw her friend die when she was ten. I used to bust out crying all the time, and that was always their go-to line. See Miss Lawrence. I wipe my eyes. Coach, I'm okay. No, you're not. She pulls a hall pass from her pocket and holds it toward me. Go talk to her. It'll help you feel better. No, it won't. But I know what will. I take the pass, grab my backpack out my locker, and go back into the gym. My classmates follow me with their eyes as I hurry toward the doors. Chris calls out for me. I speed up. They probably heard me crying. Great. What's worse than being the angry black girl? The weak black girl. By the time I get to the main office, I've dried my eyes and my face completely. Good afternoon, Miss Carter. Dr. Davis, the headmaster, says. He's leaving as I'm going in and doesn't wait for my response. Does he know all the students by name or just the ones who are black like him? I hate that I think about stuff like that now. His secretary, Mrs. Lindsay, greets me with a smile and asks how she can assist me. I need to call someone to come get me, I say. I don't feel good. I call Uncle Carlos. My parents would ask too many questions. A limb has to be missing for them to take me out of school. I only have to tell Uncle Carlos that I have cramps, and he'll pick me up. Feminine Problems The Key to Ending an Uncle Carlos Interrogation Luckily, he's on lunch break. He signs me out, and I hold my stomach for added effect. As we leave, he asks if I want some froyo. I say, yeah. And a short while later, we're going into a shop that's walking distance from Williamson. It's in a brand new mini mall that should be called Hipster Heaven, full of stores you'd never find in Garden Heights. On one side of the froyo place, there's indie urban style. And on the other side, Dapper Dog, where you can buy outfits for your dog. Clothes. For a dog. What kind of fool would I be, dressing bricks in a linen shirt and jeans? On a serious tip, white people are crazy for their dogs. We fill our cups with yogurt. At the toppings bar, Uncle Carlos breaks out into his froyo wrap. I'm getting fro-yo-yo, yo, fro-yo, yo-yo. He loves his fro-yo. It's kind of adorable. We take a booth in a corner that's got a lime green table and hot pink seats. You know, typical fro-yo decor. Uncle Carlos looks over into my cup. Did you seriously ruin perfectly good fro-yo with Cap'n Crunch? You can't talk, I say. Oreos, Uncle Carlos? Really? And they're not even the golden Oreos, which are by far the superior Oreos. You got the regular ones. Ew. He devours a spoonful and says, You're weird. You're weird? So cramps, huh? He says, Shit, I almost forgot about that. I hold my stomach and groan, Yeah. They're real bad today. 
I know who won't win an Oscar any time soon. Uncle Carlos gives me his hard detective stare. I groan again. This one sounds a little more believable. He raises his eyebrows. His phone rings in his jacket pocket. He sticks another spoonful of froyo in his mouth and checks it. It's your mom calling me back, he says around the spoon. He holds the phone with his cheek and shoulder. Hey, Lisa, you get my message? Shit. She's not feeling good, Uncle Carlos says. She's got, you know, feminine problems. Her response is loud but muffled. Shit. Shit. Uncle Carlos holds the nape of his neck and slowly releases a long, deep breath. He turns into a little boy when Mama raises her voice at him, and he's supposed to be the oldest. Okay. Okay. I hear you, he says. Here, you talk to her. Shit, shit, shit. He passes me the piece of dynamite formerly known as his phone. There's an explosion of questioning as soon as I say, Hello? Cramps, star, really? She says. They're bad, mommy, I whine, lying my butt off. Girl, please, I went to class in labor with you, she says. I pay too much money for you to go to Williamson so you can leave because of cramps. I almost point out that I get a scholarship, too, but nah. She'd become the first person in history to hit someone through a phone. Did something happen? She asks. No. Is it Khalil? She asks. I sigh. This time tomorrow, I'll be staring at him in a coffin. Star? She says. Nothing happened. Miss Felicia calls for her in the background. Look, I gotta go, she says. Carlos will take you home. Lock the door, stay inside, and don't let anybody in. You hear me? Those aren't zombie survival tips. Just normal instructions for latchkey kids in Garden Heights. I can't let Seven and Sakani in? Great. Oh, somebody's trying to be funny. Now I know you ain't feeling bad. We'll talk later. I love you. Mwah! It takes a lot of nerve to go off on somebody, call them out, and tell them you love them within a span of five minutes. I tell her I love her, too, and pass Uncle Carlos his phone. All right, baby girl, he says. Spill it. I stuff some froyo in my mouth. It's melting already. Like I said, cramps. I'm not buying that, and let's be clear about something. You only get one Uncle Carlos get-me-out-of-school card per school year, and you're using it right now. You got me in December, remember? For cramps also. I didn't lie about those. They were a bitch that day. All right, one per calendar year, he clarifies. I smile. But you got to give me a little more to work with, so talk. I push Captain Crunch around my froyo. Khalil's funeral is tomorrow. I know. I don't know if I should go. 
What? Why? Because, I say, I hadn't seen him in months before the party. You still should go, he says. You'll regret it if you don't. I thought about going. Not sure if that's a good idea, considering. Silence. Are you really friends with that cop? I ask. I wouldn't say friends, no. Colleagues. But you're on a first-name basis, right? Yes, he says. I stare at my cup. Uncle Carlos was my first dad in some ways. Daddy went to prison around the time I realized that Mommy and Daddy weren't just names, but they meant something. I talked to Daddy on the phone every week, but he didn't want me and Seven to ever set foot in a prison, so I didn't see him. I saw Uncle Carlos, though. He fulfilled the role and then some. Once I asked if I could call him Daddy, he said no, because I already had one but being my uncle was the best thing he could ever be. Ever since, uncle has meant almost as much as daddy. My uncle, on a first-name basis with that cop. Baby girl, I don't know what to say. His voice is gruff. I wish I could. I'm sorry this happened. I am. Why haven't they arrested him? Cases like this are difficult. It's not that difficult, I say. He killed Khalil. I know, I know, he says, and wipes his face. I know. Would you have killed him? He looks at me. Star, I can't answer that. Yeah, you can. No, I can't. I'd like to think I wouldn't have. But it's hard to say unless you're in that situation, feeling what that officer is feeling. He pointed his gun at me, I blurt out. What? My eyes prickle like crazy. While we were waiting on help to show up, I say, my words wobbling. He kept it on me until somebody else got there, like I was a threat. I wasn't the one with the gun. Uncle Carlo stares at me for the longest time. Baby girl. He reaches for my hand. He squeezes it and moves to my side of the table. His arm goes around me and I bury my face in his rib cage, tears and snot wetting his shirt. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He kisses my hair with each apology. But I know that's not enough. Eight. Funerals aren't for dead people. They're for the living. I doubt Khalil cares what songs are sung or what the preacher says about him. He's in a casket. Nothing can change that. My family and I leave 30 minutes before the funeral starts, but the parking lot at Christ Temple Church is already full. Some kids from Khalil's school stand around in R.I.P. Khalil t-shirts with his face on them. A guy tried to sell some to us yesterday, but Mama said we weren't wearing them today. T-shirts are for the streets, not for church. So here we are, getting out the car in our dresses and suits. 
My parents hold hands and walk in front of me and my brothers. We used to go to Christ's temple when I was younger, but Mama got tired of how people here act like their shit don't stank. And now we go to this diverse church in Riverton Hills. Way too many people go there, and praise and worship is led by a white guy on guitar. Oh, and service lasts less than an hour. Going back in Christ Temple is like when you go back to your old elementary school after you've been to high school. When you were younger, it seemed big. But when you go back, you realize how small it is. People fill up the tiny foyer. It has cranberry-colored carpet and two burgundy high-back chairs. One time Mama brought me out here because I was acting up. She made me sit in one of those chairs and told me not to move until service was over. I didn't. A painting of the pastor hung above the chairs, and I could have sworn he was watching me. All these years later, and they still have that creepy painting up, there's a line to sign a book for Khalil's family and another line to go into the sanctuary to see him. I catch a glimpse of the white casket at the front of the sanctuary, but I can't make myself try to see more than that. I'll see him eventually, but I don't know. I want to wait until I don't have any other choice. Pastor Eldridge greets people in the doorway of the sanctuary. He's wearing a long white robe with gold crosses on it. He smiles at everyone. I don't know why they made him look so creepy in that painting. He's not creepy at all. Mama glances back at me, Seven and Sakani, like she's making sure we look nice. Then she and Daddy go up to Pastor Eldridge. Morning, Pastor she says. Lisa, so good to see you. He kisses her cheek and shakes Daddy's hand. Maverick, good to see you as well. We miss y'all around here. I bet y'all do, Daddy mumbles. Another reason we left Christ's temple. Daddy doesn't like that they take up so many offerings, but he doesn't even go to our diverse church. And these must be the children. Pastor Eldridge says. He shakes Seven's and Sakani's hands and kisses my cheek. I feel more of his bristly mustache than anything. Y'all sure have grown since I last saw you. I remember when the little one was an itty-bitty thing wrapped up in a blanket. How's your mama doing, Lisa? She's good. She misses coming here, but the drive is a little long for her. I side-eye the hell, excuse me, heck, we're in church, out of her. Nana stopped coming to Christ's temple because of some incident between her and Mother Wilson over Deacon Rankin. It ended with Nana storming off from the church picnic, banana pudding in hand. That's all I know, though. We understand, says Pastor Eldridge. Let her know we're praying for her. He looks at me with an expression I know too well. Pity. Miss Rosalie told me you were with Khalil when this happened. I'm so sorry you had to witness it. Thank you. It's weird saying that, like I'm stealing sympathy from Khalil's family. 
Mama grabs my hand. We're going to find some seats. Nice talking to you, Pastor. Daddy wraps his arm around me, and the three of us walk into the sanctuary together. My legs tremble, and a wave of nausea hits me, and we aren't even at the front of the viewing line yet. People go up to the casket in twos, so I can't see Khalil at all. Soon there are six people in front of us. Four. Two. I keep my eyes closed the whole time with the last two. Then it's our turn. My parents lead me up. Baby, open your eyes, Mama says. I do. It looks more like a mannequin than Khalil in the casket. His skin is darker, and his lips are pinker than they should be because of the makeup. Khalil would have had a fit if he knew they put that on him. He's wearing a white suit and a gold cross pendant. The real Khalil had dimples. This mannequin version of him doesn't. Mama brushes tears from her eyes. Daddy shakes his head. Seven and Sakani stare. That's not Khalil, I tell myself. Like it wasn't Natasha. Natasha's mannequin wore a white dress with pink and yellow flowers all over it. It had on makeup, too. Mama had told me, see, she looks asleep. But when I squeezed her hand, her eyes never opened. Daddy carried me out the sanctuary as I screamed for her to wake up. We move so the next set of people can look at Khalil's mannequin. An usher is about to direct us to some seats, but this lady with natural twists gestures toward the front row of the friend's side, right in front of her. No clue who she is, but she must be somebody if she's giving orders like that. And she must know something about me if she thinks my family deserves the front row. We take our seats, and I focus on the flowers instead, there's a big heart made out of red and white roses, a K made out of calla lilies, and an arrangement of flowers in orange and green, his favorite colors. When I run out of flowers, I look at the funeral program. It's full of pictures of Khalil, from the time he was a curly-haired baby up until a few weeks ago with friends I don't recognize. There are pictures of me and him from years ago, and one with us and Natasha. All three of us smile, trying to look gangster with our peace signs. The hood trio, tighter than the inside of Voldemort's nose. Now I'm the only one left. I close the program. Let us stand. Pastor Eldridge's voice echoes throughout the sanctuary. The organist starts playing and everyone stands. And Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says, coming down the aisle. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Miss Rosalie marches behind him. Cameron walks alongside her, gripping her hand. Tears stain his chubby cheeks. He's only nine a year older than Sakani, 
Had one of those bullets hit me, that could have been my little brother crying like that. Khalil's Aunt Tammy holds Miss Rosalie's other hand. Miss Brenda is wailing behind them, wearing a black dress that once belonged to Mama. Her hair has been combed into a ponytail. Two guys, I think they're Khalil's cousins, hold her up. It's easier to look at the casket. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Pastor Eldridge says. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. At Natasha's funeral, her mama passed out when she saw her in the casket. Somehow, Khalil's mama and grandma don't. I want to make one thing clear today, Pastor Eldridge says, once everyone is seated. No matter the circumstances, this is a home-going celebration. Weeping may endure for a night, but how many of you know that joy? He doesn't even finish, and people shout. The choir sings upbeat songs. And almost everyone claps and praises Jesus. Mama sings along and waves her hands. Khalil's grandma and auntie clap and sing, too. A praise break even starts, and people run around the sanctuary and do the Holy Ghost two-step, as Seven and I call it, their feet moving like James Brown and their bent arms flapping like chicken wings. But if Khalil's not celebrating, how the hell can they? And why praise Jesus, since he let Khalil get shot in the first place? I put my face in my hands, hoping to drown out the drums, the horns, the shouting. This shit doesn't make any sense. After all that praising, some of Khalil's classmates, the ones who were in the parking lot in the T-shirts, make a presentation. They give his family the cap and gown Khalil would have worn in a few months and cry as they tell funny stories I'd never heard. Yet I'm the one in the front row on the friend's side. I'm such a fucking phony. Next, the lady with the twists goes up to the podium. Her black pencil skirt and blazer are more professional-looking than church-looking, and she's wearing an R.I.P. Khalil T-shirt, too. Good morning, she says, and everyone responds. My name is April Ofra, and I'm with Just Us for Justice. We are a small organization here in Garden Heights that advocates for police accountability. As we say farewell to Khalil, we find our hearts burdened with the harsh truth of how he lost his life. Just before the start of this service, I was informed that despite a credible eyewitness account, the police department has no intentions of arresting the officer who murdered this young man. What? I say, as people murmur around the sanctuary. Everything I told them? And they're not arresting him? What they don't want you to know, Miss Ofra says, is that Khalil was unarmed at the time of his murder. People really start talking then. A couple of folks yell out, including one person who's bold enough to shout, 
This is bullshit in a church. We won't give up until Khalil receives justice, Miss Ofer says over the talking. I ask you to join us and Khalil's family after the service for a peaceful march to the cemetery. Our route happens to pass the police station. Khalil was silenced, but let's join together and make our voices heard for him. Thank you. The congregation gives her a standing ovation. As she returns to her seat, she glances at me. If Miss Rosalie told the pastor I was with Khalil, she probably told this lady, too. I bet she wants to talk. Pastor Eldridge just about preaches Khalil into heaven. I'm not saying Khalil didn't make it to heaven. I don't know. But Pastor Eldridge tries to make sure he gets there. He sweats and breathes so hard I get tired looking at him. At the end of the eulogy, he says, If anybody wishes to view the body, now is the... He stares at the back of the church. Murmurs bubble around the sanctuary. Mama looks back. What in the world? King and a bunch of his boys post up in the back in their gray clothes and bandanas. King has his arm hooked around a lady in a tight black dress that barely covers her thighs. She has way too much weave in her head, for real. It comes to her ass, and way too much makeup on. Seven turns back around. I wouldn't want to see my mama looking like that either. But why are they here? King lords only show up at King Lord funerals. Pastor Eldridge clears his throat. As I was saying, if anyone wishes to view the body, now is the time. King and his boys swagger down the aisle. Everybody stares. Aisha walks alongside him, all proud and shit, not realizing she looks a hot mess. She glances at my parents and smirks, and I can't stand her ass. I mean, not just because of how she treats Seven but because every time she shows up, there's suddenly an unspoken tension between my parents. Like now, Mama shifts her shoulder so it's not as close to Daddy, and his jaw is clenched. She's the Achilles' heel of their marriage, and it's only noticeable if you've been watching it for 16 years, like I have. King, Aisha, and the rest of them go up to the casket. One of King's boys hands him a folded gray bandana and he lays it across Khalil's chest. My heart stops. Khalil was a king lord, too? Miss Rosalie jumps up. Like hell you will! She marches to the coffin and snatches the bandana off Khalil. She starts toward King, but Daddy catches her halfway and holds her back. Get out of here, you demon! She screams. And take this mess with you. She throws the bandana at the back of King's head. He stills. Slowly, he turns around. Now look, the A, Daddy says. King man, just go. Leave, Ike. Yo, hag, Aisha snarls. Got some nerve treating my man like this after he offered to pay for this funeral. He can keep his filthy money. Miss Rosalie says, 
and you can take your behind right out the door too, coming in the Lord's house looking like the prostitute you are. Seven shakes his head. It's no secret that my big brother is the result of a four-hire session Daddy had with Aisha after a fight with Mama. Aisha was King's girl, but he told her to hook Maverick up, not knowing Seven would come along looking exactly like Daddy. Fucked up, I know. Mama reaches behind me and rubs Seven's back. There are rare times when Seven's not around and Mama thinks Sikani and I can't hear her, that she'll tell Daddy, I still can't believe you slept with that nasty hoe. But Seven can't be around. When he's around, none of that matters. She loves him more than she hates Aisha. The King Lords leave, and conversations break out all around. Daddy leads Miss Rosalie to her seat. She's so mad she's shaking. I look at the mannequin in the coffin. All those horror stories Daddy told us about gangbanging. And Khalil became a king lord? How could he even think about doing that? It doesn't make sense, though. He had green in his car. That's what garden disciples do, not king lords. And he didn't run to help out with the fight at Big D's party. But the bandana... Daddy once said that's a King Lord tradition. They crown their fallen comrades by putting a folded bandana on the body, as if to say they're going into heaven repping their set. Khalil must have joined to get that honor. I could have talked him out of it. I know it. But I abandoned him. Fuck the friend's side. I shouldn't even be at his funeral. Daddy stays with Miss Rosalie for the rest of the service and later helps her when the family follows the casket out. Aunt Tammy motions us over to join them. Thank you for being here, she tells me. You meant a lot to Khalil. I hope you know that. My throat tightens too much for me to tell her he means a lot to me, too. We follow the casket with the family. Just about everyone we pass has tears in their eyes. For Khalil... He really is in that casket, and he's not coming back. I've never told anyone, but Khalil was my first crush. He unknowingly introduced me to stomach butterflies, and later heartbreak when he got his own crush on Imani Anderson, a high schooler who wasn't even thinking about fourth grade him. I worried about my appearance for the first time around him, but fuck the crush. He was one of the best friends I ever had, no matter if we saw each other every day or once a year. Time didn't compare to all the shit we went through together. And now he's in a casket. Like Natasha. Big fat tears fall from my eyes. And I sob. A loud, nasty, ugly sob that everybody hears and sees as I come up the aisle. They left me, I cry. Mama wraps her arm around me and presses my head onto her shoulder. I know, baby, but we're here. We aren't going anywhere. Warmth brushes my face and I know we're outside. All of the voices and noises make me look 
there are more people out here than in the church, holding posters with Khalil's face on them and signs that say, Justice for Khalil. His classmates have posters saying, Am I next? And Enough is Enough. News vans with tall antennas are parked across the street. I bury my face in Mama's shoulder again. People, I don't know who, pat my back and tell me it'll be okay. I can tell when it's Daddy who's rubbing my back without him even saying anything. We gonna stay and march, baby, he tells Mama. I want Seven and Sakani to be a part of this. Yeah, I'm taking her home. How are y'all getting back? We can walk to the store. I gotta open up anyway. He kisses my hair. I love you, baby girl. Get some rest, all right? Heels clack toward us. Then someone says, Hi, Mr. and Mrs. Carter. I'm April Ofra, with Just Us for Justice. Mama tenses up and pulls me closer. How may we help you? She lowers her voice and says, Khalil's grandmother told me that Star is the one who was with Khalil when this happened. I know she gave a statement to the police, and I want to commend her on her bravery. This is a difficult situation, and that must have taken a lot of strength. Yeah, it did, Daddy says. I move my head off Mama's shoulder. Miss Ofra shifts her weight from foot to foot and fumbles with her fingers. My parents aren't helping with the hard looks they're giving her. We all want the same thing, she says. Justice for Khalil. Excuse me, Miss Ofra, Mama says. But as much as I want that, I want my daughter to have some peace. And privacy. Mama looks at the news vans across the street. Ms. Ofra glances back at them. Oh, she says. Oh, no. No, no, no. We weren't. I wasn't. I don't want to put Star out there like that. Quite the opposite, actually. I want to protect her privacy. Mama loosens her hold. I see. Star offers a unique perspective in this, one you don't get a lot with these cases, and I want to make sure her rights are protected and that her voice is heard. But without her being exploited, Daddy asks, pimped, exactly. This case is about to gain national media attention, but I don't want it to be at her expense. She hands each of us a business card. Besides being an advocate, I'm also an attorney. Just Us for Justice isn't providing the Harris family with legal representation. Someone else is doing that. We're simply rallying behind them. However, I'm available and willing to represent Star on my own. Whenever you're ready, please give me a call. And I am so sorry for your loss. She disappears into the crowd. Call her when I'm ready, huh? I'm not sure I'll ever be ready for the shit that's about to happen. Context of White Supremacy. That is the first audio segment for The Hate You Give. So we just concluded Chapter 8. We will pick up on Chapter 9 for the second audio segment. I want to make sure I get it on the record 
we have read, I'm not even sure we've read a quarter of this book. We're on chapter, we just finished chapter 8, and there are 26 chapters in this book. So we are, if my math is correct, we are not quite a third of the way through the book. That said, this is a really tacky, trashy piece of work. And I seriously doubt that anything we read in the next two thirds is going to change my opinion of that book, of this book, excuse me. Trashy, tacky, bold face letters, highlight. That is my impression. I could sum it. That would be my book review. Tacky, trashy. Actually reminds me of Empire. That, that, my question any of the listeners, I know Thomas is a big fan. We have any listeners out there. If you are familiar at all with Empire, I have not seen a single episode. I'm not even sure that I've sat in front of a screen where it was on for 30 seconds. But my impression of Empire from what I've heard, what I've read, I think I have seen like a commercial uh, for an episode. I feel like reading this book, I have watched an episode of Empire. Is that an accurate comparison? I'm I'm kind of stepping out on faith because, like I said, I've not seen a single episode of Empire, not even two minutes of one episode of Empire. And I've read less than a third of this book, but I think they are one and the same. This could be the script for an episode of Empire. Please let me know if I'm talking crazy, especially if we have any younger folks, students, if you are under uh, 20 high school student and you've read this book and you've seen an episode of Empire uh, or if you think, you know, Gus is just talking wacky, uh, saying that this book is trashy and tacky. The number six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate if you do not have a phone you can use the free vote line to participate it's linked at black talk radio network the address tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one address again tiny t-i-n-y dot c-c forward slash one race and that is the number one when you put in the address look on the left you'll see the link for the vote line click it it will open a small window on your screen top line it is a drop down menu select the number i just gave out six four one seven one five three six four zero next line it will ask for the code five six four nine four three final line it will ask for a name you can put in a real name nickname you can press random keys whatever you're comfortable with once you get all that information entered click the green button at the bottom to connect you should be able to hear us live same procedure if you would like to participate you'll see the dial pad on your screen press star six one star six one i'll see your hand we will get you on the line all the folks who dialed in uh with a hand up uh line should be open if you have commentary and again i would appreciate 
Uh, let me know if Gus is talking crazy. I submit this text, one and the same, with the hit Fox series, Empire. If I am off, you can let me know. Uh, good to hear from all the folks who dialed in. Uh, feel free to participate. Can I hear? Okay, Let's see. We'll take uh, the color. Uh, we'll take the color at last four digits, two seven three zero. Thanks. Uh, this is Jay from STL. Um, I wanted to just offer some commentary. Uh, thanks for everybody uh, listening. Um, but I want to say uh, that uh, I tuned in kind of late. Um, I missed a little bit, but I heard the funeral, and immediately I was reminded of a sensationalization of death. I think that's uh, pretty. Um, it's a pretty, uh, pretty uh, significant trend throughout this book. Um, I also noticed about the church. I think uh, popular representations of the church um, is particularly interesting. Given the given the history of the church, uh, I'm not a Christian myself, but you know churches. I mean, black people used, we used to teach each other how to read and run away in churches. So I just think it's interesting that now in the 21st century, churches are places where pacification comes into play and going on up that mountain over the river somewhere. And um, I, uh, while it was less explicit in this uh, in this depiction. I think uh, stereotypical depictions of black people are often exalted throughout this text, and and because it's being disseminated through public schools, um, it's going to be remembered. Um, I think this is how collective memory is destroyed, because this is going to be in 30 years what they call an authentic authentic black literature. This is going to be a part of that canon, and it's going to include characterizations of black males as demons and filthy, um, and then the prostitute. Oh, my goodness. The father had a baby with a oh, – oh, I, I don't even know how to articulate that. So, some type of sexual transaction with the woman and uh, a lot going on right there. And this is being given to children. So I would, I would say, Gus, you're not off at all. This is a disgusting text. Um, and thank, thank everybody for listening. Thank you for allowing me to speak. And that's all I have to say. Appreciate that. Uh, caller at 5631. 5631. Hi, Gus. Um, good evening, Gus, and all the callers. This is Kwame from the Bronx. Uh, I also tuned in late and caught the whole funeral scene. Um and I'm with you. It's funny how you began um, your commentary after the audio ended, talking about how tacky and trashy um, the book has been so far. Um, that was some of the notes I took. Was tacky, trashy, and terroristic behavior at the funeral. Um, Nearly Fuller Jr. describes um, in in the cold book. He talks about how. Black people and white people, it's like how we interact with each other is just so tacky and trashy and terroristic. It's, and that was all over um, the funeral scene. And when the King Lord put the bandana on the casket and um, and then the grandmother went off on him, it was just, uh, it was just so nauseating. 
Um, and some of the other notes I took was that black male death is very profitable and is and is really a galvanizing force in this society. It's just black male death, whether it's, you know, Trayvon Martin, Lando Castile, Oscar Grant, and on and on and on and on. It's just like black male death. It's just like it motivates everything. It's like the fuel of the society. And um yeah, with the selling of the um RIP Khalil T shirts and this new character, April um Op- Ofra, I think that's her name. Um, that's gonna be like her the the main issue she takes on to start her activist career or something like that. It's just like blackmail death, it's just it's just like, man, it's it all goes back to you know, the Crest Theory and also Tommy Curry. I can't wait till he comes back to the cows and talks about, you know, the black male misandry in the society and how, you know, black male death is just seen as, like, everyday business in, in the system, under the system of white supremacy. And um, that's all I have for right now. I'll, I'll, I'll speak some more later. Thank you for taking my call. Appreciate that. Uh, I just want to remind folks, because I, I do think it's significant, the author, Angie Thomas, who is a black female, reportedly, I did. I'm going to stick to my theory that I said last week about a white ghost writer. At any rate, the author, Angie Thomas, she said in an interview that her favorite character in the book is Maverick. So the author's favorite character, Maverick, in addition to being a reformed criminal, former convict, had a child cheated an affair with a prostitute. But that's her favorite character because of his representation of black masculinity and black fatherhood. That's what she said. I'm paraphrasing, but she said that was her favorite character because she wanted a strong representation of a black father. Hmm. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, good evening. Uh, 2812 from Virginia. Um, <clears throat> I played catch-up uh, last week at work, uh, listening to the first two. And um, it's, uh, I, well, I don't even really know how to describe it, but um, I think Gus's commentary in the beginning was very accurate. The one thing that I really noticed um, in listening was, Every environment to where there's a majority of black people, it doesn't matter if it's church, if she's at the bodega, if she's at home, if she's anywhere, it is all chaotic. Everything is just pure chaos. There, and the only environment to where she seems to get, it's being portrayed as any small level of quote-unquote peace is when she's at school. And that's really the main reason why I think that people who classify themselves as white love this book because black dysfunction is selling at an extremely high rate. And I just keep listening and I keep listening. And I know that this is being, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know this is being adapted into a film. And I noticed that all of these films and in the area of entertainment, they get all these rave reviews. They go to Sundance and things of that nature. And black people just say, oh, this is a great film. I think there was a movie called Moonlight. And I know Nate, Nate Parker. 
And there's another one that came out. I don't suggest it. Um, but as I was listening here, um, I'm from New York, and there's another uh, film that just came out called Roxanne, Roxanne, and literally it's about a young female MC from the Bronx, if people are familiar, but I'll be quick. I put that on mute literally as I'm listening to this, and it's the same exact story. Pure black dysfunction and chaos. And then the other thing, and then I'll shut up, is in her Wikipedia page and in all these articles, she says that she was inspired by the deaths of Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, things of that nature. Maybe the book will change. Um, She has BGQ. Maybe it'll get something different. I don't see how talking about this black dysfunction was inspiring as opposed to talking about the white racist system and and or AKA cops that did this. I, I could be wrong, but I'm just trying to figure out how was this black dysfunction in area area, a inspiration instead of being inspired to maybe write about racism in a more constructive way. And she is a victim, so maybe this is just how she's interpreting it, but I could be wrong, and um, I'll meet my line. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings. Uh, this is Rob in Wisconsin. Um, <clears throat> real quickly, uh, the title of the book, um, Thug, I think uh, that has something to do with the popularity of the book. Uh, interesting thing, uh, I check with the technical college that I attend today to get my hands on the text, and it is unavailable. Um, I think there is a few copies available, and <clears throat> it is unavailable, so it is pretty popular where I am. And uh, this may not uh be a popular uh perspective of the text that we are going over right now but for me um 37 years old um what you consider an 80s baby um while i agree um that the text is trashy uh white people are not being highlighted as the problem um but the vernacular of the book the way the information is presented Uh, For an 80s baby, it is refreshing, and I think that it highlights um, where we are uh, within the system um, of white supremacy today. Uh, Code switching is very uh, real. Uh, I experience it every day uh, at the college level, and um, I think that more and more of our youth is um, has, uh, has to deal with that on a daily basis, and I think that this text um, really uh, puts people uh, who is resisting the system, um, kind of puts you in um, a younger person's shoes um, because, like, I'm, like I said, I'm an 80s baby, and I, I graduated class in 99, the internet was just really breaking on the scene, and um, I couldn't imagine being a high school kid or even a middle school kid faced with the temptation of Facebook, Twitter, and all of those other things that can consume the time of an adult. 
uh, let alone a child. So uh, that's my commentary. Thanks for letting me share. Appreciate that. Rob in Wisconsin. Um, not surprised that you had some difficulty getting the book either. Uh, other folks who dialed in, if you have a hand up, if we missed you completely, if you've not spoken, uh, you should go ahead and share your commentary now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. This is Black Monica. Um, I agree with you, Gus. I think this book is definitely trashy uh, and tacky, but I also say that I think the book is terroristic for the minds of black people. Um, you know, this book uh, continues to uh, bring the father's past uh, flaws um, back up uh, despite his present actions. And that reminds me of um, whenever an unarmed black man is killed, his past, despite his present actions at the time of his death, continue to be brought back up. Um, I find it interesting that uh, black lives are supposed to have continuous trauma uh, and I think white people enjoy this book because they enjoy a voyeuristic view of seeing our trauma. Um, I think that this book is a, a modern-day form of black slavery movies. Uh, this book is like watching footage of black people being killed over and over. And the reason why I say I think this book is even more so terroristic for the minds of black people is because uh, with movies, you, you get one image that's projected on a screen but as you say, and um, Dr. Francis Creswellstein says a lot, words are very important. And, um, and the words, I think, uh, present additional images and symbols that stick with you more than images. Um, and so that's, that's my comment there. Thank you for letting me share. Indeed, indeed. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have commentary, proceed. Hello. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Thank you so much for taking my call. Good evening, everyone. I hope all are as well as can be. Um, I guess you had the question about Empire. I did watch that, I guess, the first season, whatever, those 10 shows. I guess to me it's different. Not that they're not both tacky, but to me Empire was set up as kind of a make-believe world. It was based on the people say it was based on Shakespeare, so to me it was like white people's story with black faces a lot in that first year. So to me, I guess that's what made it different. To me, this book makes it sound like this is really what happens in the lives of black people all the time. And, again, I just don't, maybe I don't know the right black people. Um, again, with the cursing with the, in the adults, I know I brought that up before, that is still, I can't believe I'm still listening to this book because I saw that once on a TV show, and I stopped watching that show, because I just can't believe no one is saying anything to these black children. Um, but to me, it's worse only because it's portrayed as this is real life. And I know some of the situations, there are black people, like I was a black person who went to school, predominantly white high school, but, you know, it was not the same <laughs> experience, I guess, because it was in, a, I don't know, a different environment or whatever. But to me, it's not the same. This book is tacky. It's trashy. I just, I guess the only constructive thing about it is I'm thinking, I said, I need to find some black children and find out if this is their real life because I haven't been around black children in a long time. I used to do Sunday school and all that, but I don't anymore. 
So I need to find out if this, if these are, because if these are real black children, if black children are really going through this, and if they are, we really do need to do something to help them. Because again, I was grew up as a black child in the '80s, and I'm not saying you know everything was all hunky dory, but it was pretty good. It was pretty decent, you know. I didn't have to. I didn't have. I don't know. These situations just did not happen to me, so I can't relate. But that's all for now. Which aspect of it? The near brawl in the church at a funeral or the white boyfriend or the police shooting? Like, which which aspect of it? Well, I mean, well, I've been to, well, I've actually been to a funeral of someone who had, um, their son died and he had, um, he was, I guess he did drugs. He was in a drug game or whatever. And he died and the went to the funeral, but, you know, the, the person preached, people started putting their guns down. It was very positive. You know, to me, it was very positive because they would think people think about changing their life around and not getting caught up in these things with no gang person laying down something. It was a, actually a very positive, you know, as it could be for a funeral experience. It wasn't like this, no gang people coming in there and all that. It wasn't like that at all. Mm. Well... Much obliged for the commentary. Uh, we'll have to ponder, particularly if there are younger people, you know, if you read the oh, book. Oh, I did want to say, did I say I thought it was more like the show Atlanta? I did want to bring, I saw that show once. It's This book seems to be more like that show Atlanta. I saw it once. I can't watch it anymore. And white people love that, too. Mm. Haven't seen it, but I have uh, heard of it. Yeah. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, if we missed you completely, uh, go ahead with your commentary. Yes, ma'am, be heard. Greetings, Mr. Demry Four. Yes, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the other callers. Um, as to answer your question, uh, I think it's a, a combination of like empire, power, the wire. They got a new one out now, uh, Shy. You know, all of these are, uh, I don't know, some parts of it, you know, is what's going on now. But if you were an outsider looking in uh, to get an idea of what life was like for a black American, you would be shocked and appalled. You know, but I have a question. Um, what time period? are we talking about in this book? Because she make reference to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which was in the 90s, I believe. And then they're singing along with the Jonas Brothers in one part, and I believe they were in the early 2000s, around 2005. It seems like she skips back and forth uh, in her environment. But anyway... Um, I'll try to move fast here. The interview she had with the police uh, after the interview, uh, you know, no one told her that, you know, she should not be discussing the case uh, with anyone or anything of that nature. She didn't get any advice from her uncle. It looks like that he's more and more on the side of the police. Um, let's see, um, Haley, uh, it's more like it's Haley's world and Star and Maya 
is just following along. She thinks Haley's a best friend, but Haley's practicing racism on a almost on a daily basis as well as uh, I think Chris. But um, they practice racism on them and then uh, make them feel bad about calling it out, calling us, you know, racism or uh, what it is. Uh, and unless I'm mistaken, I think that she was supposed to go and talk to the school counselor, Ms. Lawrence, and she skipped out on that because uh, uh, she pretended to be ill, you know, and that's the first indication of any help for this uh, young lady. She's very confused and no uh, stable role model is present. Um, the importance of fatherhood is uh, brought out when she wants to call her uncle her first dad. And uh, too many times in, in this system, the black families are destroyed like that by jailing, you know, black males. And then the last thing I want to talk about is the churches, like the, the caller from the SDL, I believe, uh, was mentioned that churches used to be used as headquarters for the civil rights. But now, you know, the image of black church is more like a circus, a lot of anti-blackness going on. And the funerals, funerals have been catalysts for efforts to fight against racism, white supremacy globally. Uh, at the funerals, uh, there's marches afterwards, this and that. But uh, nowadays, it's it's all just. It seems like it's it's just common, and I don't think that uh, that they stayed with the police shooting of an unarmed black man long enough, you know, for us to feel some kind of psychological kinship with the victim. And I'll uh, mute my line on that. Thanks, guys. Hmm. I uh, appreciate that, Mr. Demery Foy. In terms of the time period, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which uh, debuted in the 90s, it's been in syndication for such a long time that I got the impression that this was somewhere in like the early 2000s, uh, like before 2010. That was the impression that I got in terms of uh, time period because the Fresh Prince would have been on in syndication at that point, and it seemed like they were watching reruns, like them, like knowing all the lines and having it all memorized. It seemed like they were kind of watching this uh, over and over again. Uh, so I thought it was around the High School Musical and all that. I thought this was like in the 2000s somewhere. But if other people have ideas about what what the time period is for all this, you can you know share your your thoughts on that as well. Uh, do we, any other folks that we missed completely? We have anybody who has not been able to share at all? Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings. Uh, Empire, is that is that the program uh, with the uh, actress, uh, I think her first name is Raj? Taraji P. Henson? Yeah, is, is that, is that? Yes. The pro, is, okay, I've, I've, I've never I've never seen it. I've never seen it before. I've heard a lot about it. And from what I've heard about it enough from people who opinion I uh, respect, <laughs> I don't even bother to uh, tune into it. 
because uh, it would uh, kind of like really uh, uh, be trying uh, to me to uh, watch uh, uh, too much foolishness. Uh, but uh, so I stay away from, so I, I can't compare the two. Uh, but from what I've heard about it and, and what, uh, you know, made, made a, uh, a prejudgment on, uh, I would say if it doesn't match with it, it it's, it's just about the same. It's, and I think it can get worse as far as this book is concerned. Uh, uh, I, I have the last thing I put down here. I got a lot of notes, and, and I, I, I really uh, like the uh, commentary out of everybody before me. Uh, so hopefully uh, people will have patience with what I wrote down. I, sp I spoke directly to what was read. The last, the last comment before you uh, turned it off, uh, it, it, it sounded like a criticism uh, to black people like uh, Reverend Sharpton. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I couldn't help but uh, think of uh, Mr. Sharpton, uh, uh, VGQ, uh, uh, with what uh, with what he he does. Uh, but the, most of the negativity that I hear of Reverend Sharpton comes directly from white people. Uh, so I'm I'm I'm, uh, I'm about just about to cast my vote with you with uh, the idea that a white person only wrote this book. Uh, 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 now, going through my, my notes, uh, uh, the first thing I got here is the trivial way we justify having sex with whites and or intimacy. May not, may, he, uh, she may not have had sex with him, but definitely been intimate. It's very trivial uh, justifications on why. Uh, and uh, uh, all of the first part is so-called play between males and females, for the most part, is sexual especially in contact sports like basketball, you know, we got males and females are playing and they bump it into one another, especially at that age, you know, uh, 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 I've, I've witnessed it myself. Uh, I, uh, participated in it myself when I was uh, that age, uh, when the few times where that did take place. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot of welding moments. Uh, I think I heard going to the hole at least twice in that, in that part, of the uh the book uh i have down here uh to do oh sexual contact even between non-whites should be handled with caution you know uh like mr fuller stated about uh uh you should ask you should ask tons of questions uh intrinsic questions uh before you get serious uh emotionally with with another person uh, I have down here by the middle of my notation, uh, agreeing with, uh, you by saying tacky, trashy, terroristic, as far as the, uh, interaction, uh, for the most part in the book. Uh, I, I have our collective situation is so traumatic that a nice, attractive white person is the only qualification we require to allow intimate contact. I've seen that more times than I that I want would want to see. Uh, I think I understand why we're living under a global system of racist white supremacy, and it's going to have an effect. And the effect uh, is is that uh, we uh, admire and uh, really admire and like uh, white people, especially those white people who are capable of practicing racism. Uh, and uh, I see that going on with this uh, so-called. 
uh, uh, male friend, white male friend of hers. Uh, and I suspect, I have down here, and I suspect white people understand this. I'm pretty sure they're aware of it. Uh, we wouldn't have a global system of quote-unquote white supremacy if white people wasn't, wasn't aware of the results, of the negative results that they have imposed upon their victims. Uh, I have down here, this formula provides a almost permanent a, a white identified non-white person. When you when you get yourself that emotionally attached to white people, that white person, that non-white person becomes almost a permanent white identified uh, person. Uh, placing a child once again, I think I said this the last last week. Placing a child in such a contrasting environment takes a toll takes a toll on that particular person. And uh, from hearing the readings, and that's what it comes out to be. Uh, I got down here as another notation, black people enjoy funerals. That's what I get out of it. I've I, I, I grown tired of going to them, especially ones where the uh, person in the casket was below the age of, of uh, 18, or 17, 18 years old. Uh, tired of going to them. They become like program shows, uh, you know, uh, fashion show, uh, bravado, uh, uh, who, can, who can apply the most emotions, who can make the best speech, who can sing the best, you know, that sort of thing. I, I, I'm tired of going. I probably won't go to another one uh, as far as that concern. Uh, uh, I, I doubt, I have down here, last but not least, I doubt uh, intimacy with a white man can solve, solve all of the problems we are uh, listening to. Uh, it seems like, and I think one of the uh, the other participants uh, mentioned this. Uh, if if you split the uh, the book in half, the contact that she has, she because she mentioned this dual this dual uh, uh, life. If you split it in half with the relationships with the non-white people and the white people, it's something like forty to nothing right now. <laughs> As far as they're concerned, on the on the quote unquote non-white side, it's chaos, uh, 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 chaos, a uh, 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 total. And uh, other than uh, the white people, and they are going to practice racism. It just so it just so happens in this particular case, they're more refined. But the uh, the near the end of the the, the reading, uh, that was kind of like obvious uh, to the uh, the non-white uh, subject in the in the book. Uh, but for the but the whole uh, whole idea about intimacy, you know, is actually is practicing racism, but she doesn't know it, and that's all I have to say. Thank you. Appreciate that, retired firefighter. Uh, is anybody else that dialed in that we have missed completely? Anybody else dialed in that we haven't heard from at all? We got everybody. I will check. Uh, the line again. We had one person who wrote in. I think this is the actual person who uh, first suggested uh, that we perhaps investigate this text. Uh, an educa black educator uh, who was seeing this book being taught in schools and seeing lots of black children with the book. A uh, wrote, person wrote in, uh, listen to the first segment of The Hate You Give. I thank the Cows listeners for sharing their perspective. It was frustrating to listen to this book and have no one to share my views with. Even the black teachers at my school love this book. That is mightily depressing. 
Every time I listen to the audio, I picture suspected racists having a read aloud in their classroom using all the language in this book. To answer your question about my thoughts as a parent on this book, suspected racist teachers have a way of imposing themselves on our children, regardless of whether we like it or not. For example, it was just Dr. Seuss's birthday this past March 2nd, and his books were celebrated in classrooms around the country, even preschool classrooms. They made hats sang songs, and even ate green eggs and ham. My daughter is in preschool, so the only thing she knows is that I don't care for Dr. Seuss. I plan on being straightforward when she asks why. I would be somewhat bothered by my daughter reading a book like this in high school, but by that time, I plan to infuse as much black self-respect in her as possible. I would rather read the book or any other books she is reading in school with her so that I can so that we can analyze it together so she does not have to reach her own conclusions or the same conclusions as suspected racists from these books. I was also thinking about what you were saying with suspected racists coming out with a novel about their addictions and trashy behavior. They would remove a book like that from schools immediately. They did this with Catch The Catcher in the Rye, and that book cannot hold a candle to the explicit material in The Hate You Give. Another thing I wanted to add was that Angie Thomas stated that Chris serves as an example of what a white ally should look like. I think we should keep this in mind as we move forward in the book. I agree. The other comment was I wanted to respond to a few of the questions posed from the last book study. One question was concerning the language and content of young adult literature. This seems to be the way these books are written now, specifically for young non-white people. Let's keep that in mind that The Catcher in the Rye is a banned book. I also listened to the popular book Dear Martin, which I think would be a good follow-up for the book club. The similarities are very very telling of what the new young adult genre is about. The book also displays less confused black people as crazy or misinformed. I also would like to answer the caller's question about young people's language. Cursing and inappropriate language is no longer a big deal in many non-white schools that I have been around. In fact, suspected racists and non-white teachers curse in front of students all the time. Of course, I try to have a no cursing policy in my classroom, but some students do it without even thinking about it. I think it starts with suspected racist teachers and their language in the classroom, as well as the material that they present to non-white students in their classrooms. Comments from a black educator. Uh, the only things I'll get in really quick, uh, I think I said at the beginning that The Hate You Give spent 38 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. To be accurate, it spent 38 weeks at the top, number one on the bestseller list. It's still on the New York Times bestseller list at number two. It's been there for 55 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. In my view, it no book would be there that long if it was not heartily supporting the system of white terrorism worldwide. I could be in error. Uh, I also thought the segment where they're at school at the beginning of chapter seven, and she's talking about Chris, her alleged white ally. And she says, I suddenly really, really realized that Chris is white. I doubt that seriously. I think most of us do not really, really realize what it means to be white, what that means, just like 115. And I know I'm sitting here next to my white best friend, 
but it's almost as if I'm giving Khalil, Daddy7, and every other black guy in my life a big, loud fuck you by having a white boyfriend. Again, this is one of those where it is about logic, the absence of logic for me. It's not that you're giving them an F you. It's that you are with someone who is a suspected racist. I mean, you can add all that if that means something to you, but the logic is that this might not be a wise decision in a system of white supremacy just for your personal safety, uh, health, well-being, mental health, to be with someone who is probably a racist. And I mean, that's going bare minimum counter-racist standards here. Not about some emotion and, oh, I'm messing over all the black eyes. <laughs> that's just extra nonsense and, and consistently the absence of logic in this tech when we're text when we're talking about racism. Um... Yeah, I don't really need to dig through too much of the trashiness that went on in this one. I thought the portion where she says where she was concerned, Star was concerned, if the folks at Williamson find out that she was in the car when Khalil was shot, uh, what will that make me, the thug ghetto girl with the drug dealer? Once again, in the system of white supremacy, you already are the ghetto not understanding what it means to be white, not understanding racism, white supremacy. Um, I thought it was really tacky in kind of a low-key way, the way that they have allowed different racists, Haley, racist woman, to come in, and she was the one that stopped following her on social media because of the Emmett Till post. She's the one that comes back in and makes the racist comment about fried chicken during the basketball game, but she gets to also be the one to console and soothe her. What do you mean? Racist. My mom died before I know you're going through it. Come on. And gets to pat her on the back. <laughs> the segment, uh, Racist Fingerprint, Maybe they didn't write the whole book. Maybe they just inserted, made some edits, some suggestions that could have happened as well. Or maybe they did write the whole book. But one that, to me, definitely the fingerprints of a racist author. That scene with the frozen yogurt with Uncle Carlos. Uncle Carlos looks over into my cup. Did you seriously ruin perfectly good Froyo with Cap'n Crunch? You can't talk, I say. Oreos, Uncle Carlos? Really? And they're not even the golden Oreos, which are by far the superior Oreos. You got the regular ones. Ew. The regular Oreos are the black ones. That right there. Just something as subtle as that, where you get to slip in some anti-blackness and it just sounds like you're having a little casual conversation about frozen yogurt and cookies, but you get to slip in the superior Oreos are the golden Oreos. And I think even sometimes they get referred to as blonde, but whatever. They are definitely not black. Uh, The black Oreos, something wrong with them. That right there. Next. uh, In fact, I think I can, I am good. (laughs) I will will leave it there. Does anybody have any uh, comments that they want to get in? Chapter 9 is kind of beefy, so we're going to start a little early. Anybody got any other comments they need to get in before we proceed? Yeah, I, I uh, quite a few folks. Let's see. Uh, do we any females? I think I heard about three different people. Do we have any female callers who spoke up there? Okay, they were all males. Let's see. We'll get. Oh, we did. We uh, we did have one. I think uh, was the caller, ma'am. The caller at seven six five six. Did you have commentary? Hello. Yes, ma'am. Um. No, I agree with what you said. I did 
I did peep the thing about the Oreos. But I mean, it's so much you can go on and on forever. But I did peep the thing about the Oreos. I was with you with that. Right on. Five, six, three, one. Did you have a quick comment you need to get in? Um, you mentioned or yes. Um, got you mentioned Oreos. Um, it made me think about Oreo experience. My favorite guest on the cows. Um, she reminds me a lot of this character. I think she would really identify with Star. I'll mute my line. I bet she's read this book. Uh, retired firefighter, did you have a quick comment? Yes, I I, I made a note of the uh, slick comment that she made to justify having an intimate relationship with this white male uh, when she stated, uh, and I put a paraphrase by saying that, uh, well, he, he didn't, he didn't murder uh, 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 her friend. I think it was Khalil. She, he didn't murder my, my, my friend Khalil, like, uh, uh, 115. That's, that's the, uh, badge number for the, uh, for the, uh, enforcement race soldier. Uh, 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 you know, a little slick comment to justify, you know, something is, is atrocious and, 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 and uh, incorrect as uh, intimacy. I, I'm not even talking about sex necessarily, but intimacy with the, uh, with the white male. Uh, also, I, I noticed that there weren't, they weren't, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they weren't any uh, uh, of these white quote-unquote friends at the funeral, Correct. I think you are correct. I don't remember Chris or anyone being mentioned being at the funeral. Right. Now, mind you now, mind you now, this, what, this, this is considered to be a large incident, a very uh, 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 large incident that took place. And in, in such, it's going to be in, on, on the newspaper. If she was in that car, her name was going to be in that paper. You know, if his name was in the paper and being reported, then her name would be also reported. So they would have known that she was in that car. We will leave it there. She did have uh, the section at the school where they asked uh, where they two of her friends, Haley, the racist uh, who made the fried chicken comment and the other little white girl. They did ask because they did see it on the news and uh, star told them that she did not know that Khalil. She did not want them to know and she has not talked to Chris or any of her white friends. So the way that the novel is setting it is that at least some of the white students do know about the incident. They did see it in the news, but Star is not talking to any of her white schoolmates about this incident. So they don't know that this is does have something to do with Star. Anywho, chapter nine, we'll pick up there. We should have ample time for folks to share additional comments if you have any. Uh, this is the Hate You Give Context of White Supremacy audio segment number two. Nine. My brothers come home with a message. Daddy spending the night at the store. He also leaves instructions for us. Stay inside. A chain link fence surrounds our house. Seven puts the big lock on the gate, the one we use when we go out of town. I bring bricks inside. He doesn't know how to act, walking around in circles and jumping on the furniture. Mama doesn't say anything until he gets on her good sofa in the living room. Hey, she snaps her fingers at him. Get your big behind off my furniture. You crazy? He whimpers and scurries over to me. The sun sets. We're in the middle of saying grace over pot roast and potatoes when the first gunshots ring out. We open our eyes. Sikani flinches. I'm used to gunshots, 
but these are louder, faster. One barely sounds off before another's right behind it. Machine guns, says Seven. More shots follow. Take your dinner to the den, Mama says, getting up from the table, and sit on the floor. Bullets don't know where they're supposed to go. Seven gets up, too. Ma, I can... Seven, den, she says. But seven! She breaks his name down. I'm turning the lights off, baby, okay? Please go to the den. He gives in. All right. When Daddy isn't home, Seven acts like he's the man of the house by default. Mama always has to break his name down and put him in his place. I grab my plate and Mama's and head for the den, the one room without exterior walls. Bricks is right behind me, but he always follows food. The hallway darkens as Mama turns off the lights throughout the house. We have one of those old-school big-screen TVs in the den. It's Daddy's prized possession. We crowd around it, and Seven turns on the news, lighting up the den. There are at least a hundred people gathered on Magnolia Avenue. They chant for justice and hold signs, fists high in the air for black power. Mama comes in, talking on the phone. All right, Mrs. Pearl, as long as you're sure. Just remember, we got enough room over here for you if you don't feel comfortable being alone. I'll check in later. Mrs. Pearl is this elderly lady who lives by herself across the street. Mama checks on her all the time. She says Mrs. Pearl needs to know that somebody cares. Mama sits next to me. Sikani rests his head in her lap. Bricks mimics him and puts his head in my lap, licking my fingers. Are they mad cause Khalil died? Sikani asks. Mama brushes her fingers through his high-top fade. Yeah, baby, we all are. But they're really mad that Khalil was unarmed. Can't be a coincidence this is happening after Miss Ofra announced that at his funeral. The cops respond to the chants with tear gas that blankets the crowd in a white cloud. The news cuts to footage inside the crowd of people running and screaming. Damn, Seven says. Sikani buries his face in Mama's thigh. I feed Bricks a piece of my pot roast. The clenching in my stomach won't let me eat. Sirens wail outside. The news shows three patrol cars that have been set ablaze at the police precinct, about a five-minute drive away from us. A gas station near the freeway gets looted, and the owner, this Indian man, staggers around bloody, saying he didn't have anything to do with Khalil's death. A line of cops guard the Walmart on the east side. My neighborhood is a war zone. Chris texts to see if I'm okay, and I immediately feel like shit for avoiding him, beyond saying him, and everything else. I would apologize, but texting I'm sorry, combined with every emoji in the world, isn't the same as saying it face to face. I do let him know I'm okay, though. Maya and Haley call, asking about the store, the house, my family, me. Neither of them mentioned the fried chicken drama. It's weird talking to them about Garden Heights. We never do. I'm always afraid one of them will call it the ghetto. 
I get it. Garden Heights is the ghetto, so it wouldn't be a lie. But it's like when I was nine and Seven and I got into one of our fights. He went for a low blow and called me Shorty McShort Short. A lame insult now when I think about it, but it tore me up back then. I knew there was a possibility I was short. Everybody else was taller than I was, and I could call myself short if I wanted. It became an uncomfortable truth when Seven said it. I can call Garden Heights the ghetto all I want. Nobody else can. Mama stays on her phone, too, checking on some neighbors and getting calls from others who are checking on us. Miss Jones down the street says that she and her four kids are holed up in their den like we are. Mr. Charles next door says that if the power goes out, we can use his generator. Uncle Carlos checks on us, too. Nana takes the phone and tells Mama to bring us out there, like we're about to go through the shit to get out of it. Daddy calls and says the story is all right. It doesn't stop me from tensing up every time the news mentions a business that's been attacked. The news does more than give Khalil's name now. They show his picture, too. They only call me the witness. Sometimes the 16-year-old black female witness. The police chief appears on screen and says what I was afraid he'd say. We have taken into consideration the evidence as well as the statement given by the witness, and as of now, we see no reason to arrest the officer. Mama and Seven glance at me. They don't say anything with Sakani right here. They don't have to. All of this is my fault. The riots, gunshots, tear gas, all of it are ultimately my fault. I forgot to tell the cops that Khalil got out with his hands up. I didn't mention that the officer pointed his gun at me. I didn't say something right, and now that cop's not getting arrested. But while the riots are my fault, the news basically makes it sound like it's Khalil's fault he died. There are multiple reports that a gun was found in the car, the anchor claims. There is also suspicion that the victim was a drug dealer as well as a gang member. Officials have not confirmed if any of this is true. The gun stuff can't be true. When I asked Khalil if he had anything in the car, he said no. He also wouldn't say if he was a drug dealer or not. And he didn't even mention the gang-banging stuff. Does it matter, though? He didn't deserve to die. Sikani and Bricks start breathing deeply around the same time, fast asleep, that's not an option for me with the helicopters, the gunshots, and the sirens. Mama and Seven stay up, too. Around four in the morning, when it's quieted down, Daddy comes in, bleary-eyed and yawning. They didn't hit Marigold, he says, between bites of pot roast at the kitchen table. Looks like they're keeping it mostly on the east side, near where he was killed. For now, at least. For now. Mama repeats. Daddy runs his hand over his face. Yeah, I don't know what's going to stop them from coming this way, shit. Much as I understand it, I dread it if they do. We can't stay here, Maverick, she says, and her voice is shaky, like she's been holding something in this entire time and is just now letting it out. 
This won't get better. It'll get worse. Daddy reaches for her hand. She lets him take it, and he pulls her onto his lap. Daddy wraps his arms around her and kisses the back of her head. We'll be all right. He sends me and Seven to bed. Somehow I fall asleep. Natasha runs into the store again. Star, come on! Her braids have dirt in them, and her once fat cheeks are sunken. Blood soaks through her clothes. I step back. She runs up to me and grabs my hand. Hers feels icy, like it did in her coffin. Come on, she tugs at me. Come on. She pulls me toward the door and my feet move against my will. Stop, I say. Natasha, stop. A hand extends through the door, holding a Glock. Bang! I jolt awake. Seven bangs his fist against my door. He doesn't text normal and he doesn't wake people up normal either. We're leaving in ten. My heart beats against my chest like it's trying to get out. You're fine, I remind myself. It's seven, stupid butt. Leaving for what? I ask him. Basketball at the park. It's the last Saturday of the month, right? Isn't this what we always do? But the riots and stuff. Like Pop said, that stuff happened on the east. We're good over here. Plus, the news said it's quiet this morning. What if somebody knows I'm the witness? What if they know that it's my fault that cop hasn't been arrested? What if we come across some cops and they know who I am? It'll be all right, Seven says, like he read my mind. I promise. Now get your lazy butt up so I can kill you on the court. If it's possible to be a sweet asshole, that's Seven. I get out of bed and put on my basketball shorts, LeBron jersey, and my 13s, like Jordan wore before he left the Bulls. I comb my hair into a ponytail. Seven waits for me at the front door, spinning the basketball between his hands. I snatch it from him, like you know what to do with it. We'll see about that. I holler to let Mama and Daddy know we'll be back later and leave. At first, Garden Heights looks the same. But a couple of blocks away, at least five police cars speed by. Smoke lingers in the air, making everything look hazy. It stinks, too. We make it to Rose Park. Some king lords sit in a gray escalade across the street, and a younger one's on the park merry-go-round. Long as we don't bother them, they won't bother us. Rose Park occupies a whole block, and a tall chain-link fence surrounds it. I'm not sure what it's protecting, the graffiti on the basketball court, the rusting playground equipment, the benches that way too many babies have been made on, or the liquor bottles, cigarette butts, and trash that litter the grass. We're right near the basketball courts, but the entrance to the park is on the other side of the block. I toss the ball to seven and climb the fence. I used to jump down from the top, but one fall and a sprained ankle stopped me from doing that again. When I get over the fence, Seven tosses the ball to me. 
and climbs. Khalil, Natasha, and I used to take a shortcut through the park after school. We'd run up the slides, spin on the merry-go-round till we were dizzy, and try to swing higher than one another. I try to forget all that as I check the ball to seven. First at thirty? Forty, he says, knowing damn well he'll be lucky if he gets twenty points. He can't play ball just like Daddy can't play ball. As if to prove it, Seven dribbles using the palm of his hand. You're supposed to use your fingertips. Then this fool shoots for a three. The ball bounces off the rim, of course. I grab it and look at him. Weak! You knew that shit wasn't going in. Whatever. Play the damn game. Five minutes in, I have ten points to his two, and I basically gave him those. I fake left. Make a quick right in a smooth crossover and go for the three. That baby goes in nicely. This girl's got game. Seven makes a tee with his hands. He pants harder than I do. And I'm the one who used to have asthma. Time out. Water break. I wipe my forehead with my arm. The sun glares on the court already. How about we call it? Hell no. I got some game in me. I got to get my angles right. Angles? This is ball seven, not selfies. Hey, yo! Some boy calls. We turn around and my breath catches. Shit. There are two of them. They look 13, 14 years old and are wearing green Celtics jerseys. Garden disciples, no doubt. They cross the courts, coming straight for us. The tallest one steps to seven. Nigga, you kingin'? I can't even take this fool seriously. His voice squeaks. Daddy says there's a trick to telling OGs from young Gs, besides their age. OGs don't start stuff. They finish it. Young Gs always start stuff. Nah, I'm neutral, Seven says. And King, your daddy? The shorter one asks. Hell no. He just messing with my mama. It don't even matter. The tall one flicks out a pocket knife. Hang your shit over. Sneakers, phones, everything. Rule of the garden. If it doesn't involve you, it doesn't have shit to do with you. Period. The king lords in the Escalade see everything going down. Since we don't claim they're set, we don't exist. But the boy on the merry-go-round runs over and pushes the GDs back. He lifts up his shirt, flashing his piece. We got a problem? They back up. Yeah, we got a problem, the shorter one says. You sure? Last time I checked, Rose Park was king territory. He looks toward the Escalade. The king lords inside nod at us, a simple way of asking if things are cool. We nod back. I, the tall GD says, we got you. The GDs leave the same way they came. The younger king lord slaps palms with seven. You straight, bruh? He asks. Yeah. Good looking out, Vontae. I can't lie. He's kind of cute. Hey, just because I have a boyfriend doesn't mean I can't look. And as much as Chris drools over Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, and Amber Rose, I dare him to get mad at me for looking. 
On a side note, my boyfriend clearly has a type. This Vontae guy's around my age, a little taller, with a big afro puff and the faint signs of a mustache. He has some nice lips, too. Real plump and soft. I've looked at them too long. He licks them and smiles. I had to make sure you and little mama were okay. And that ruins it. Don't call me by a nickname if you don't know me. Yeah, we're fine, I say. Them GDs helped you out anyway, he tells Seven. She was killing you out here. Man, shut up, Seven says. This is my sister, Star. Oh, yeah, the guy says. You the one who work up in Big Mav's store, ain't you? Like I said, I get that all the time. Yep, that's me. Star, this is Devante, Seven says. He's one of King's boys. Devante? So this is the dude Kenya fought over. Yeah, that's me. He looks at me from head to toe and licks his lips again. You heard about me or something? All that lip licking. Not cute. Yeah, I've heard about you. And you may want to get some chapstick if your lips that dry, since you're licking them so much. Damn, it's like that? What she means is thanks for helping us out, Seven says, even though that's not what I meant. We appreciate it. It's all good. Them fools running around here because the riot's happening on their side. It's too hot for them over there. What you doing in the park this early anyway? Seven asks. He shoves his hands in his pockets and shrugs. Post it up. You know how it go. He's a D-boy. Damn. Kenya really knows how to pick them. Anytime drug-dealing gangbangers are your type, you've got some serious issues. Well, King is her daddy. I heard about your brother. Seven says, I'm sorry, man. Dalvin was a cool dude. Devante kicks out a pebble on the court. Thanks. Mom's taking it real hard. That's why I'm here. Had to get out the house. Dalvin? Devante? I tilt my head. Your mama named y'all after them dudes from that old group Jodeci? I only know because my parents loved them some Jodeci. Yeah? So? It was just a question. You don't have to have an attitude. A white Tahoe screeches to a stop on the other side of the fence. Daddy's Tahoe. His window rolls down. He's in a wife beater and pillow marks zigzag across his face. I pray he doesn't get out, because knowing Daddy, his legs are ashy and he's wearing Nike flip-flops with socks. What the hell y'all thinking, leaving the house without telling nobody? He yells. The king lords across the street bust out laughing. Devante coughs into his fist like he wants to laugh, too. Seven and I look at everything but Daddy. Oh, y'all want to act like y'all don't hear me? Answer me when I'm talking to you. The king lords howl with laughter. Pops, we just came to play ball, Seven says. I don't care. All this shit going on and y'all leave? Get in this truck. God damn, I say under my breath. Always gotta act a fool. What you say? He barks. 
The king lords howl louder. I want to disappear. Nothing, I say. Nah, it was something. Tell you what, don't climb the fence. Go round to the entrance, and I bet not beat y'all there. He drives off. Shit. I grab my ball, and Seven and I haul ass across the park. The last time I ran this fast, Coach was making us do suicides. We get to the entrance as Daddy pulls up. I climb in the back of the truck, and Seven's dumb butt gets in the passenger seat. Daddy drives off. Done lost your minds, he says. People rioting, damn near calling the National Guard around here, and y'all want to play ball. Why you have to embarrass us like that? Seven snaps. I'm so glad I'm in the back seat. Daddy turns toward Seven, not even looking at the road, and growls, You ain't too old. Seven stares ahead. Steam is just about coming off him. Daddy looks at the road again. Got some goddamn nerve talking to me like that because some king lords were laughing at you. What you kinging now? Seven doesn't respond. I'm talking to you, boy. No, sir, he bites out. So why you care what they think? You want to be a man so damn bad, but men don't care what nobody thinks. He pulls into our driveway. Not even halfway up the walkway, I see Mama through the screen on the door, in her nightgown, her arms folded and her bare foot tapping. Get in this house, she shouts. She paces the living room as we come in. The question isn't if she'll explode, but when. Seven and I sink onto her good sofa. Where were y'all? She asks. And you better not lie. The basketball court, I mumble, staring at my jays. Mama leans down close to me and puts her hand to her ear. What was that? I didn't hear you good. Speak up, girl, Daddy says. The basketball court, I repeat louder. The basketball court. Mama straightens up and laughs. She said the basketball court. Her laughter stops, and her voice gets louder with each word. I'm walking around here worried out my mind, and y'all at the damn basketball court? Somebody giggles in the hallway. Sikani, go to your room, Mama says without looking that way. His feet thump hurriedly down the hall. I hollered and told y'all we were leaving. I say. Oh, she hollered, Daddy mocks. Did you hear anybody holler, baby? Because I didn't. Mama sucks her teeth. Neither did I. She can wake us up to ask for some money, but she can't wake us up to tell us she's going in a war zone. It's my fault, Seven says. I wanted to get her out the house and do something normal. Baby, there's no such thing as normal right now, says Mama. You see what's been happening, and y'all were crazy enough to go out there like that? Dumb enough is more like it, Daddy adds. I keep my eyes on my shoes. Hand over your phones, Mama says. What? I shriek. That's not fair. I hollered and told y'all. Star Amara, she says through her teeth. Since my first name is only one syllable, she has to throw my middle name in there to break it down. If you don't hand me that phone, I swear to God. I open my mouth, but she goes, say something else.
I dare you, say something else. I'll take all them Jordans, too. This is some bullshit, for real. Daddy watches us, her attack dog, waiting for us to make a wrong move. That's how they work. Mama does the first round, and if it's not successful, Daddy goes for the KO, and you never want Daddy to go for the KO. Seven and I hand her our phones. I thought so, she says, and passes them to Daddy. Since y'all want normal so much, go get your stuff. We're going to Carlos's for the day. Nah, not him. Daddy motions Seven to get up. He going to the store with me. Mama looks at me and jerks her head toward the hall. Go. I ought to make you take a shower, smelling like outside. As I'm leaving, she hollers, And don't get any skimpy stuff to wear to Carlos's either. Oh, she gets on my nerves. See, Chris lives down the street from Uncle Carlos. I am glad she didn't say any more in front of Daddy, though. Bricks meets me at my bedroom door. He jumps up my legs and tries to lick my face. I had about 40 shoeboxes stacked in a corner, and he knocked all of them over. I scratch behind his ears. Clumsy dog. I would take him with us, but they don't allow pits in Uncle Carlos's neighborhood. He settles on my bed and watches me pack. I only really need my swimsuit and some sandals, but Mama could decide to stay out there the whole weekend because of the riots. I pack a couple of outfits and get my school backpack. I throw each backpack over a shoulder. Come on, Bricks. He follows me to his spot in the backyard, and I hook him up to his chain. While I refill Bricks's food and water bowls, Daddy crouches beside his roses and examines the petals. He waters them like he's supposed to, but for some reason they're dry-looking. Come on now, he tells them. Y'all gotta do better than this. Mama and Sakani wait for me in her Camry. I end up in the passenger seat. It's childish, but I don't want to sit this close to her right now. Unfortunately, it's either sit next to her or sit next to Sir Fartalot Sakani. I'm staring straight ahead, and out the corner of my eye, I see her looking at me. She makes this sound like she's about to speak, but her words decide to come out as a sigh. Good. I don't want to talk to her either. I'm being petty as hell and don't even care. We head for the freeway, passing the Cedar Grove projects where we used to live. We get to Magnolia Avenue, the busiest street in Garden Heights, where most of the businesses are located. Usually on Saturday mornings, guys around the neighborhood have their cars on display, cruising up and down the street and racing each other. Today the street's blocked off. A crowd marches down the middle of it. They're holding signs and posters of Khalil's face and are chanting, Justice for Khalil. I should be out there with them. But I can't join that march, knowing I'm one of the reasons they're protesting. You know none of this is your fault, right? Mama asks. How in the world did she do that? I know. I mean it, baby. It's not. You did everything right. But sometimes right's not good enough, huh? She takes my hand, and despite my annoyance, I let her. 
It's the closest thing I get to an answer for a while. Saturday morning traffic on the freeway moves smoothly compared to weekday traffic. Sakani puts his headphones on and plays with his tablet. Some 90s R&B songs play on the radio, and Mama sings along under her breath. When she really gets into it, she attempts all kinds of runs and goes, Yes, girl, yes! Out of nowhere, she says, You weren't breathing when you were born. My first time hearing that. For real? Uh-huh. I was 18 when I had you. Still a baby myself, but I thought I was grown. Wouldn't admit to anybody that I was scared to death. Your Nana thought there was no way in hell I could be a good parent. Not wild Lisa. I was determined to prove her wrong. I stopped drinking and smoking, went to all of my appointments, ate right, took my vitamins the whole nine. Shoot, I even played Mozart on some headphones and put them on my belly. You see what good that was. You didn't finish a month of piano lessons. I laugh. Sorry. It's okay. Like I was saying, I did everything right. I remember being in that delivery room, and when they pulled you out, I waited for you to cry. But you didn't. Everybody ran around, and your father and I kept asking what was wrong. Finally, the nurse said you weren't breathing. I freaked out. Your daddy couldn't calm me down. He was barely calm himself. After the longest minute of my life, you cried. I think I cried harder than you, though. I knew I did something wrong. But one of the nurses took my hand. Mama grabs my hand again, looked me in the eye, and said, Sometimes you can do everything right, and things will still go wrong. The key is to never stop doing right. She holds my hand for the rest of the drive. I used to think the sun shone brighter out here in Uncle Carlos's neighborhood. But today it really does. There's no smoke lingering, and the air is fresher. All the houses have two stories. Kids play on the sidewalks and in the big yards. There are lemonade stands, garage sales, and lots of joggers. Even with all that going on, it's real quiet. We pass Maya's house, a few streets over from Uncle Carlos's. I would text her and see if I could come over, but, you know, I don't have my phone. You can't visit your little friend today, Mama says, reading my mind once a freaking again. You're grounded. My mouth flies wide open, but she can come over to Carlos's and see you. She glances at me out the corner of her eye with a half-smile. This is supposed to be the moment I hug her and thank her and tell her she's the best. Not happening. I say, cool, whatever, and sit back. She busts out laughing. You are so stubborn. No, I'm not. Yes, you are, she says, just like your father. Soon as we pull into Uncle Carlos's driveway, Sakani jumps out. Our cousin Daniel waves at him from down the sidewalk with some other boys, and they're all on their bikes. Later, Mama, Sakani says. 
He runs past Uncle Carlos, who's coming out the garage, and grabs his bike. Sakani got it for Christmas, but he keeps it at Uncle Carlos's house because Mama's not about to let him ride around Garden Heights. He pedals down the driveway. Mama hops out and calls after him. Don't go too far! I get out, and Uncle Carlos meets me with a perfect Uncle Carlos hug. Not too tight, but so firm that it tells me how much he loves me in a few seconds. He kisses the top of my head twice and asks, How are you doing, baby girl? Okay, I sniff. Smoke's in the air. The good kind, though. You barbecuing? Just heated the grill up. Gonna throw some burgers and chicken on for lunch. I hope we don't end up with food poisoning, Mama teases. Ah, look who's trying to be a comedian, he says. You'll be eating your words and everything I cook, baby sis, because I'm about to throw down. Food Network doesn't have anything on me. And he pops his collar. Lord, he's so corny sometimes. Aunt Pam tends to the grill on the patio. My little cousin Ava sucks her thumb and hugs Aunt Pam's leg. The second she sees me, she comes running. Star, star! Her ponytails fly as she runs, and she launches herself into my arms. I swing her around, getting a whole lot of giggles out of her. How's my favorite three-year-old in the whole wide world doing? Good! She sticks her wrinkly, wet thumb back in her mouth. Hey, Auntie Lily. Hey, baby. You been good? Ava nods too much. No way she's been that good. Aunt Pam lets Uncle Carlos handle the grill and greets Mama with a hug. She has dark brown skin and big curly hair. Nana likes her because she comes from a good family. Her mom is an attorney, and her dad is the first black chief of surgery at the same hospital where Aunt Pam works as a surgeon. Real-life Huxtables, I swear. I put Ava down, and Aunt Pam hugs me extra tight. How are you doing, sweetie? Okay. She says she understands, but nobody really does. Nana comes busting out the back door with her arms outstretched. My girls! That's the first sign something's up. She hugs me and Mama and kisses our cheeks. Nana never kisses us, and she never lets us kiss her. She says she doesn't know where our mouths have been. She frames my face with her hands, talking about, Thank the Lord he spared your life. Hallelujah. So many alarms go off in my head. Not that she wouldn't be happy that the Lord spared my life, but this isn't Nana at all. She takes me and Mama by our wrists and pulls us toward the poolside loungers. Y'all come over here and talk to me. But I was going to talk to Pam. Nana looks at Mama and hisses through gritted teeth. Shut the hell up, sit down, and talk to me, goddammit. Now that's Nana. She sits back in a lounger and fans herself all dramatically. She's a retired theater teacher so she does everything dramatically. Mama and I share a lounger and sit on the side of it. What's wrong? Mama asks. When? She begins, but plasters on a fake smile when Ava waddles over with her baby doll 
and a comb. Ava hands both to me and goes to play with some of her other toys. I comb the doll's hair. That girl has me trained. Doesn't have to say anything, and I do it. Once Ava's out of earshot, Nana says, When y'all taking me back to my house? What happened? Mama asks. Keep your damn voice down. Ironically, she's not keeping hers down. Yesterday morning, I took some catfish out for dinner. Was going to fry it up with some hush puppies, fries, the whole nine. I left to run some errands. What kind of errands? I ask, for the hell of it. Nana cuts me the look, and it's like seeing Mama in 30 years with a few wrinkles and gray hair she missed when coloring her hair. She'd whip my behind for saying that. I'm grown, little girl, she says. Don't ask me what I do. Anyway, I come home, and that heifer done covered my catfish in some damn cornflakes and baked it. Cornflakes, I say parting the doll's hair. Yes, talking about it's healthier that way. If I want healthy, I eat a salad. Mama covers her mouth, and the edges of her lips are turned up. I thought you and Pam got along. We did, until she messed with my food. Now, I've dealt with a lot of things since I've been here, but that, she holds up a finger, is taking it too damn far. I'd rather live with you and that ex-con than deal with this. Mama stands and kisses Nana's forehead. You'll be all right. Nana waves her off. When Mama leaves, she looks at me. You okay, little girl? Carlos told me you were in the car with that boy when he was killed. Yes, ma'am. I'm okay. Good. And if you're not, you will be. We're strong like that. I nod. But I don't believe it, at least not about myself. The doorbell rings up front. I say, I'll get it. Put Ava's doll down and go inside. Crap. Chris is on the other side of the door. I want to apologize to him, but damn it. I need time to prepare. Weird, though. He's pacing. The same way he does when we study for tests or before a big game. He's afraid to talk to me. I open the door and lean against the frame. Hey. Hey. He smiles. And despite everything, I smile, too. I was watching one of my dad's cars and saw you guys pull up, he says. That explains his tank top flip-flops and shorts. Are you okay? I know you said you were in your text, but I wanted to be sure. I'm okay, I say. Your dad's store didn't get hit, did it? He asks. Nope. Good. Staring and silence. He sighs. Look, if this is about the condom stuff, I'll never buy one again. Never? Well, only when you want me to, he quickly adds, which doesn't have to be any time soon. Matter of fact, you don't have to ever sleep with me. Or kiss me. Hell, if you don't want me to touch you, I... Chris, 
Chris, I say, my hands up to get him to slow down, and I'm fighting a laugh. It's okay. I know what you mean. Okay. Okay. Another round of staring and silence. I'm sorry, actually, I tell him, shifting my weight from foot to foot, for giving you the silent treatment. It wasn't about the condom. Oh, his eyebrows meet. Then what was it about? I sigh. I don't feel like talking about it. So you can be mad at me, but you can't even tell me why? It has nothing to do with you. Yeah, it does if you're giving me the silent treatment, he says. You wouldn't understand. Maybe you should let me determine that myself, he says. Here I am calling you, texting you everything, and you can't tell me why you're ignoring me? That's kind of shitty, Star. I give him this look, and I have a strong feeling I look like Mama and Nana right now with their, I know you didn't just say that, glare. I told you, you wouldn't understand, so drop it. No. He folds his arms. I came all the way down here. All the way? Bruh, all what way? Down the street? Garden Heights Star is all up in my voice right now. Yeah, down the street, he says. And guess what? I didn't have to do that, but I did. And you can't even tell me what's going on. You're white, okay? I yell. You're white! Silence. I'm white? He says like he's just hearing that for the first time. What the fuck's that got to do with anything? Everything! You're white. I'm black. You're rich. I'm not. That doesn't matter, he says. I don't care about that kind of stuff, Star. I care about you. That kind of stuff is part of me. Okay, and it's no big deal. God, seriously, this is what you're pissed about? This is why you're giving me the silent treatment? I stare at him, and I know, I know, I'm straight up looking like Lisa Janae Carter. My mouth is slightly open like hers when I or my brothers get smart, as she calls it. I've pulled my chin back a little, and my eyebrows are raised. Shit, my hand's even on my hip. Chris takes a small step back, just like my brothers and I do. It just... It doesn't make sense to me, okay? That's all. So, like I said, you don't understand, do you? Bam. If I'm acting like my mom, this is one of her see-I-told-you moments. No, I guess I don't, he says. Another round of silence. Chris puts his hands in his pockets. Maybe you can help me understand? I don't know. But I do know that not having you in my life is worse than not making beats or playing basketball. And you know how much I love making beats and playing basketball, Star. I smirk. You call that a line? He bites his bottom lip and shrugs. I laugh. He does, too. Bad line, huh? He asks.
awful. We go silent again, but it's the type of silence I don't mind. He puts his hand out for mine. I still don't know if I'm betraying who I am by dating Chris, but I've missed him so much it hurts. Mama thinks coming to Uncle Carlos's house is normal, but Chris is the kind of normal I really want, the normal where I don't have to choose which star to be, the normal where nobody tells you how sorry they are or talks about Khalil the drug dealer. Just normal. That's why I can't tell Chris I'm the witness. I take his hand, and everything suddenly feels right. No flinching and no flashbacks. Come on, I say. Uncle Carlos should have the burgers ready. We go into the backyard, hand in hand. He's smiling, and surprisingly, I am too. That's all you need to put a smile on your face. Context of white supremacy. Second audio segment is done. Uh, we'll pick up next week, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific next Friday. Uh, I believe that would be March 30th. Uh, we'll be here to continue with the Hate You Give, Angie Thomas. If you have commentary you would like to share, the number to dial 681-715-3640. The code 564943. Pound, press star six one if you would like to participate. I was taking extensive notes about what white allyship looks like in that last segment with Chris. Mm. All the folks who have a hand up, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Let me see if we have any folks that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if there are any people that we didn't get to hear from during the first audio segment, you should go ahead and get your hand up right now uh, to make sure that we have time for your commentary. Uh, while I'm doing that, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up line is open. Go ahead with your commentary. Can I be heard? Greetings. Can retired. I be heard? Uh, let's get retired firefighter first. <laughs> I'll, I'll be, I'll be fast. Uh, uh, my only comment was going to be on the last, uh, that very last portion. Uh, what, what, a, uh, it, this, this is, this is, the first word coming to my mind is disgusting. Uh, because the, the, uh, dialogue comes right up to the point of the context of white supremacy. It comes right up to the point and, and it gets, it gets trashed, it gets thrown in the trash. Uh, oh, it, it gets it gets uh, dismissed by a a small quip by the suspected racist. Am I making sense? A small quip by the racist. Do you do you think Chris when when he, when, when, he, when when he when he made some sort of joke like statement and she uh, quote unquote cracked a smile? Let's see. Let's see. The last page. Uh, so. I don't want to talk to you about all this because you're white. I don't understand. Chris puts his hands in his pockets. Maybe you can help me understand. I don't know, but I do know that not having you in my life is worse than not making beats or playing basketball. 
and you know how much I love making beats and playing basketball, a star. I smirk. You call that a line. He bites his bottom lip and shrugs. I laugh. He does too. And there you go. I mean, did I, did I hear that correctly? I mean, it comes right up to the point of having a dialogue with a suspected racist about the global system of racism, white supremacy, and where he fits in to that equation. And all he has to do is put his hands in his pockets, make a short quip, get her to laugh, and that's it. Uh-uh. uh-uh. <laughs> anyway, that's all I have to say uh, for this portion. It, it, it kind of like, uh, in, in, a, in a short way, itemizes what this book is all about. Uh, it it, it kind of like... Uh, Really, in, in the most, in the most, almost the most sophisticated and horrendous situations that black people go through on a daily basis, and at the end of the day, white people uh, save the day, so to speak, and, and it's all right with 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 uh, black people and white people as far as they're concerned, it, it, especially if they're like Chris, you know that sort of thing. That's all I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. So the caller at uh, last four digits, five, six, three, one. But my notes thus far, white allyship, making beats, playing basketball, sexual intercourse with non-white people. That is white allyship thus far. Let me know if I missed anything. Caller. Uh, hi, Gus. This is Kwame from the Bronx. Um, yeah, I'm a retired firefighter. Um, that last portion of the book, it, it was really just tacky, really, really tacky. And, um, yeah, this might seem anti-black on my part, but, man, this girl, Star, she has more baggage than Delta Airlines, man. If I, if, if I was Chris, man, I would, I would run. Like, man, well, I would go find me a, 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 a black female or a white female that was more cooperative than this female. I mean, like, oof. <laughs> Um, but yeah, uh, that last portion, she kept, Star kept mentioning the word normal, 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 normal over and over again. And I just equated normal with white, like, because under the system of racism, white supremacy, we're trained to see everything as normal as we're trained, non-white people are trained, are, are brain trashed and programmed into thinking that white supremacy this is normal. This is God ordained. Like this system is the way things are is normal. It's the way things are supposed to be. And man, it's like, yeah. And I see that a lot. I mean, that normal word, it's, it's really cringy and it is, it's, I think it's soaked with racism, white supremacy, but that's all I have to say for now. Appreciate that Kwame. Uh, other folks we have not heard from at all, please do not wait till the last minute. If you think you have commentary, go ahead and share now. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Um, I took some notes down as well. Um, I wanted to give a shout out to one of the callers from the first segment. I heard the word voyeuristic, and I think that really helps uh, capture how whites uh, surveil uh, black life. Uh, I wanted to bring attention to the pop culture references. I took some down. Uh, LeBron's Jordan 13s, um, like James Brown. I even heard um, 
black power, which is being commodified uh, lately. Heard that. Heard a reference to that. Nicki Minaj, Beyonce, Amber Rose. Um, I heard a very stereotypical composite black male gang member that I thought was very interesting, given um, the previous book study on um, the delectable Negro. Um, given how quickly he was uh, sexualized uh, in the text. Um, I, um, I also wanted to uh, make a point. She talked about how the air was fresher in her uncle Carlos's neighborhood. Um, there was a University of Minnesota study. Bad air actually kills non-white people, um, up to 7,000 a year, um, heart attacks caused by quality of air. So I just, just wanted to bring that up. Uh, the, the old, and, um, oh, I wanted to end on this. Um, when she said she grabbed her white ally's hand, who, who said, quote, it's no big deal, uh, that this whole race thing is no big deal. Um, when she grabbed his hand, suddenly everything felt right. Wow. Wanted to end on that. Thank you. How was the black male uh, sexualized? You referenced delectable Negro. How was he sexualized? Well, I felt like uh, some of like the physical characteristics that You're were talking given. About Khalil? Me... Oh, no, not Khalil. I okay. mean, when they were in the park, her and her brother. Oh, okay. And I think uh, Devante, it was really like, it was a very stereotypical kind of composite view into black maleness, I felt like. Hmm. Right before the father showed up, that like random character. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, appreciate that. I'll ponder on that some more. Uh, other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary you would like to share, line should be open. Anybody we missed completely? Anybody has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Yes, ma'am. I'll be here. Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, I think what the last caller was referring to is uh, the part where the black male kept licking his lips. And, you know, if she made a reference when she looked at Chris's lips, they were wet and desirable. And then she liked the black guy, but she he was licking his lips too much, I guess, for her. You know, his lips was desirable to her, but then something turned off. So uh, I think that's what he was referring to. But I'd like to say the propaganda that's in the book, that phrase about uh, uh, things don't always work out right but we still have to do keep doing what's right and that's the type of you know attitude that uh, whites would like blacks to have although bad things is happening to you i know it looks bad for you right now but you still got to just keep doing the right thing don't don't lose it don't go off and you know just keep acting like a victim supposed to act and negative references about black people back uh, before she mentioned uh, Noah Noah's Ark reference about her and another black male that was at the school 
And those were animals that Noah was bringing on the boat. And uh, she talked about zombies uh, when she referred to, uh, she was a latchkey kid. She had to go home, not like the zombies, zombie neighborhood, but her neighborhood. Uh, and she referred to her father as an attack dog uh, for the mother. And but I will say that there's some uh, a positive people. Mrs. Pearl. Uh, oh yeah, they were, you know, going over supporting uh, the elderly lady, uh, doing the rides, and offered to come that she could come over to their house for what good that would do. You know, I mean, if it's gunshots going on, she could get shot over their house as well as her own. But Mr. Rubin. You know, the the guy that encouraged them to go to get good grades in school and then the support that they gave Khalid's uh, grandmother after uh, he was killed. Uh, she made a reference to her neighborhood being a war zone. And I thought it was strange. There hadn't been too many references to the word nigger. And if you make and, you know, talk about black cultures and young people seem like they would be saying, either nigger or nigger a lot. But I think that word's been kind of uh, limited in the books uh, nowadays. But I got some some more, but I'll save that for later. Thanks, Gus, for taking the call. Hmm. Appreciate that, Mr. Demi, for very important, the metaphors where black people are referenced as animals that I think the Noah the Ark reference from a week or two back uh, when they were talking about being at school and she was supposed to be paired with another black person automatically, uh, obviously not Chris, uh, like Noah's Ark. Uh, but good point, those are animals on the Ark. And this week, the dad is an attack dog. Uh, great point. Uh, do any other folks that we missed completely have commentary? We nab everybody? Great. I hope people are not waiting until the last minute. One comment that I forgot to get in from the first session that we did this week, the scene with Uncle Carlos after the, or beyond just the Oreo anti-blackness, when he calls uh, Star's mother, his sister, to, you know, let her know, hey, I got her. She said, you know, she's having, you know, feminine issues or whatever it is. The way that he is portrayed, like he's there cowering on the phone as he's talking to Star's mother, I think that's a pattern in the book where these uh, allegedly black men, put that in quotes, these older black males uh, are really shown to be very weak. Uh, they don't really have much authority uh, over anybody. I think there are quite a few scenes. I, I think we talked about previously the scene where uh, Uncle Carlos comes to talk to Star about whether or not she's going to come to the police station to testify. And Maverick is the only one, uh, her dad is the only one to speak up and be like, you know, I don't know. And having suspicion about all this. And he gets shut down. Uh, like, you know, that's it. Hush up. Uh, Star's mom makes the decision. And that's that. We have, you know, a repetition uh, of that this week with Uncle Carlos. Uh, and I don't know, it just, man, I, I don't know if there are 
the representation of black males, black people in general in this book is pretty spotty, but particularly I'd say the representation of black males is wow. Like, I'm not sure. Is, is there a character anybody would pick in this book to be? If the author said Uncle, uh, excuse me, Maverick is her favorite character and he cheated on his wife with a prostitute, had a child, <laughs> and was a, a thug and a convict. Uh, so we got Maverick. Uh, we got Uncle Carlos, who lives with the white people and is cool with the killer of Khalil. And uh, I guess if you take Khalil, you're already dead. I mean, I don't know. Is there a black male character in the book? Anybody is like, yeah, that is the dude. I like him. He's logical. That's who. I, any any black male characters anybody would like to be in the book? Not a one. Anybody? Anybody? That's about what I seven. I guess you could take one of the children. Maybe I don't. Man, it just. Uh, uh, yes. How about the uh, the lawyer? That's a well. It's not a male, but the the black female. She may turn out to be somebody noteworthy. The and her name is oddly uh, similar to uh, Oprah, Miss Oprah. Yeah, I thought that was important too, the the similarity between the names. But I, I'm asking specifically about black male characters. I think there might be a black female character or two that you'd be like, hey, that person is, is you know, sound and logical and, and functioning okay and not having children with a prostitute and all that. Uh, but black male characters, like, wow. I, I'm going to say that's no. People would have spoken up already. No one you can think of. The other thought that came to mind, in all, and if you think of a black male character, you know, in the coming weeks or minutes, feel free. Uh, also, a thought that came to mind in all of this, there are a lot of sections in the book, and we've still only read about a third of the book. There are a lot of segments in this book, and even some of them very closely placed to the funeral of a black male, this black male's death, where Star, black female character, is fawning over this white boy and how lovely he is and adorable and all it takes is you know for him to brush by her and to breathe the same air and she's just intoxicated and it totally changes her world i cannot imagine white people having a book on the new york times bestseller list where a white teen in a non excuse me, in a, in a novel, a fictional novel for young adults, a white girl teenager is fawning over a black boy about how lovely and smart and cool he is and he is just the best thing ever. And this is set against all types, like page after page after page of white dysfunction, white drug abuse, white criminality, White violence, white death. I could not imagine that being like a bestseller for a year and being made into a major motion picture. And maybe Jennifer Lawrence will be, you know, the lead actress in all this in some sort of, come on, are you serious? And this should be like celebrated for black people. Does anybody have any other comments they want to make sure they get in? Can I be heard? I was, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. 
So uh, I wanted to get in the racial propaganda. Um, they talk, she talked about the Huxtables. Um, Antonio Moore has really done a lot of work on that. His videos can be seen on YouTube. But the myth of financial stability, I think that really appeals to a certain segment of the African-American psyche being satisfied with property ownership and the myth of the American dream. So just wanted to mention that. Thanks. Retired firefighter. Uh, I only see uh, commercials uh, and commercials of, of movies, trailers to, to movies, and also commercials that are selling products. And it, it, it works in sync with uh, the terminology in this book. Of course, the book is much more extensive because of the book. And, uh, you know, a trailer and a commercial is only about, what, 60 seconds to two minutes, something like that. But it, it all works into concert uh, to, uh, number one, uh, influence specifically uh, a lot of non-white people uh, to uh, benefit the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, and uh, it... Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, it, it depends on a lot. A lot of things depends on whether or not the movie would would uh, generate a whole lot of attention. Uh, you know, with uh, as far as the uh, how well the uh, the actors do their 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 uh, their job, or, uh, how well it's it's uh, totally put together. But I could see where it could be uh, very successful in that negative way. I, I can see it with the with this book already because the book is like helping the quote unquote movie. It's like helping the the future movie by by already doing most if not all of its advertisement because uh, apparently you you have a generation quote unquote that that has read the book. <laughs> so you know and apparently. Uh, a lot of people uh, by that book, by the book being a top seller for a very long time, that indicates that a lot of people are uh, have declared that they enjoyed it, quote unquote. Uh, so, uh, if if uh, everything works in sync as far as the uh, the advertisement and the, and the way the movie's put together, I, I can I can see that this would would is, is another uh, means to work for the global system of racist white supremacy and work against non-white people. Context of white supremacy, I'm reminded of the black educators' comments uh, who wrote in, who talked about how all of the black teachers, uh, this person's colleagues, all of the black teachers love this book. Again, wow. Very, very depressing if that is the state of uh, black educators uh, and how they're processing a text like this. Even think about what that, at least in my view, I would have to really think about that. If I'm a black male teacher and I'm reading this book, wow, what is there for me to love about this? How, how do I relate to and enjoy this book as a black male enthusiastically? Like, read this book as a black male. Like, I. Anywho, any other folks have uh, commentary? Hello? Yes, ma'am. Hi, thanks so much for taking my call again. I was just thinking about the title, The Hate You Give. Who is giving the hate? 
Because it seems like black people are hating on themselves. They made it. She's hating herself for not saying the right things to the police. So my device is her fault. She didn't kill nobody. So it's the health self-hate that you give to yourself. I mean, where is this? Because when I think of the hate you give, I'm, I guess, maybe listening to this station or whatever, the hate seems it's from white people to us, and this is how we respond to it. And I don't get, I don't get that. I don't get what is actually supposed to be the hate. Excellent point. Excellent Great point. point. She talks about her purpose for writing this book and the title. Uh, it's an audio clip. I wanted to make sure I included. I think that you know might help shed some thought on your question. But yeah, I definitely think that's important to keep in mind as we read. Any other comments, folks? Wanted to make sure they get in before we conclude. I'm Kathy Hurd. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, yeah, this is Kwame from the Bronx. Um, that last, um, that last scene, Gus, uh, when she was talking to Chris, the white boyfriend, uh, that was another example of how, um, uh, a person, a, bl- a non-white person, a black person's understanding of racism, white supremacy could be broken so easily. I mean, like, it's like for, a, um, for a quick second, like she caught some, she understood she displayed her understanding of the system of racism, white supremacy, but that white male is just like him, his, I guess his aura, his energy or whatever. It, it just like quickly disintegrated all of her understanding of racism, white supremacy after she, um, she set revealed some truth about the system. And I guess that's, and I really think that's a bad message to readers especially young readers when they read this book, it's like she understood race. She revealed truth, but then that truth was quickly broken. It's like so fast. And I just thought that was really um, fascinating. I thought that was really um, important. I, I guess the way I would, I would process that. I think you're correct. It's she's leaning in the direction of being serious about racism, white supremacy, being suspicious uh, and thinking correctly, thinking accurately of this is an individual classified as white, just like the individual 115 classified as white who killed my friend. Thinking maybe there is a relationship between you all based on that classification. Maybe that is the problem. But as you said, that gets dissipated quickly. And I think it's because it's not that she you know, had an understanding. And I think that's most of us. We do not have uh, that understanding. We will kind of get serious about processing and heading in that direction, but it does not take very much at all, generally, to confuse us and uh, get us right. back in a state where we can be easily uh, manipulated. And and a lot of that comes because our understanding is so weak. Uh, it is so uh, elementary uh, compared to a race soldier. And I mean, if she's got uh, a, a white teenager here. It's like he's got a PhD and exact. she's in kindergarten with her understanding of racism and exactly it takes about five seconds and you know, episode is over, moving on. Tragic arrangement continues. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. I uh, just wanted to ask a, a series of questions. Uh, uh, 
did the book depict her as being a an athlete? She plays. She's on the basketball team. Interesting, because I mean, you can you can write a book in any way that you you want, but from I've I've been involved with high school sports since 1981. You know what some people consider to be a long time, and. Uh, uh, and I'm and I'm talking about the pupil activity of sex. When it comes to female sports, especially basketball, on uh, from what I observed on the high school level, uh, a lot a lot of the uh, the female participants are actually are sexually confused uh, on on the team. In other words, it's, it's, in other words, uh, Chris uh, probably should have been Christina. <laughs> Uh, a white female, uh, because uh, uh, my and my first experiences of it was a uh, coworker who was the the officer on, on the fire truck. His daughter uh, played basketball. He was a basketball star when he was in high school and college, and, and it ended seconds. up his daughter. Yes, his daughter ended up you know taking it up, and, and for the most part. Uh, was always around in almost an intimidating form was uh, a sexual confusion between the females in, in this particular uh, sport. And uh, so just, just something to keep in mind uh, as far as what's the reality that I've seen. Thank you. For Can sure. I, uh, it'll have Can I to, say one last thing? Yes, sir. It'll have to take about 20 seconds. I just, in response to retired firefighter, there was that scene okay. in the book last week where star talked about having a crush on jess's uh haircut uh this is one of her white students right i remember raised. that so that you know anyway uh mr demry for 20 seconds uh yes i was i was gonna comment on that too i i thought the way she dressed and everything uh kind of spelled a different type of person but the relationship of this book to a diary of Anne frank the struggle of a young girl in hiding, stars hiding inwardly, uh, Anne Frank's sexuality, uh, doing that at Star with Chris, and why the Germans uh, did not destroy that diary. And then whites can see uh, how they can use this book to further their propaganda uh, message. And that readers, uh, well, the sanitation and the references you know, in Anne Frank's book, don't make references to the gassing and the concentration camps. And in this particular book, they talk about the police killings, but not the atrocious uh, environment and lifestyle that blacks live in every day. I mute my line. We will conclude there. Uh, if other folks have questions or comments, just make a note. We'll still be reading this book for a while. We, we have a ways to go. Uh, so uh, we'll pick up next week. It'll be on chapter 10. Uh, and I do think that is an important way to perhaps think about this book as propaganda, white supremacy, propaganda. I, I think there are a lot of different ways that we can think about this book. I had not really thought about how a classroom full of white teens would process a book like this. Anyway, I'll think about that for next week. We'll be here tomorrow. Compensatory call in 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll review what's gone down the last 10 days or so. 
Austin situation certainly will be something we will uh, address tomorrow evening. Uh, folks have comments, questions, suggestions, guest recommendations, gripes, uh, the email untiljustice at gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com. If you're listening to the archives and you want to write your thoughts or questions in about the text, uh, untiljustice at gmail.com, we can read your thoughts on the air. Uh, that's it. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, uh, participating. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Friday evening. Again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Man, it does not benefit black people at all to be intoxicated and out and about uh, and having contact with race soldiers, badge or no. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that they have racists have exploited, abused, terrorized a lot of people who were not in position to make great decisions because they were not sober. Let's do everything we can to preserve our brain computers, our health, so we can make great decisions, new concepts to solve the problem. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Certainly, if you're going to be out and about, you want to be buckled up and sober. Uh, whether you are the driver or a passenger, you want to be buckled. Let's do everything we can to minimize contact with race soldiers. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>